Israel is the illegitimate son of Egypt who challenges his father to accept him. Powerful words. But what exactly do they mean? Well, the Golden Stallion, the Man of Tomorrow, Savzu, the Rated R Radio Star, here to enlighten you uh, a bit, or at least I like to think that I'd be enlightening you. It was the most recent episode that I had done with uh, Ellen Sovereign. Had a great conversation throughout it. It was episode 398 of Sovereign Tech, where I made a statement that seemed to bother some people and, or it actually caused many others to ask questions. Hey, what do you mean by that? What is this all about? That came out of nowhere. Well, partly I'm compiling an episode here that shows a, it didn't come out of nowhere and B explaining some of my position. Uh, one of the challenges I really run into with doing a podcast, especially a podcast that doesn't mind speculating, that doesn't mind holding controversial views or opinions and expressing them quite openly, is that a lot of these things require, frankly, you know, entire, not, not just a, a two-hour episode, they require, a, a, hell, you could have an entire podcast series that runs for the next decade on its own to cover and get to the point uh, you know, or, or, or present the evidence anyway of some of the things that I uh, bring up and discuss. Fortunately, as I brought up in episode 398, um, I have gotten to the point where people seem to trust and understand that I don't just say things out of nowhere and that, you know, I have done at least, I mean, disagree with the research if you want, but at the very least, I'm coming from a reasoned researched position. Reason, other people probably would debate as well. But regardless, I assure you it is reasoned as in it comes from a point of you know research and fact, or at least very suggestive evidence. Now, I have to admit that much of what I, so, all right, hold on. <laughs> what am I even talking about? Well, I am talking about that I basically made the claim that Torah ultimately is a space manual or more particularly a space travel and survival manual, or at least in part. Now you can go back to episode 398 and hear what I had said about it. And I linked to it in the show notes, but I'm guessing because I'm releasing this directly after that episode came out, that those words are fresh in your mind. So I don't have to replay those here. What I am going to replay are segments Actually, not all segments. Some of them are complete episodes. Um, I'm going to re-release prior work here, which is I, I know it's something that actually a lot of you, because I've done it recently where I've called them classic conversations. I'm not going to title this a classic conversation, but certainly it's loaded with them um, because I had implored listeners to go back and listen to uh, my book review of Joseph Bloomrich's Spaceships of Ezekiel. Uh, as well as to go back and listen to my review, my book review of, I mean, both of these are book reviews, but my book review of the Egyptian origins of King David and the temple of Solomon by Ahmed Osman. Here's the trouble. So when I, <laughs> when I implored you to do that, I went back, I easily found the book review for spaceships of Ezekiel, but I have no idea where I reviewed, um, the Ahmed Osman book. 
Now, I know I've talked about him many times, and maybe it's just something that I brought up in conjunction with another subject and I didn't do a full-on review and I thought I did a full-on review. Regardless, I've got your hookup right here. Um, what this is, is again, a compilation of you will have the complete book review of the spaceships of Ezekiel, which originally, uh, that came out. So of course the episode we're talking about episode 398 was December 25th, 2020. My spaceships of Ezekiel book review was from July 7th, 2019. Now you'll get that, but then you'll also get a conversation that came in, uh, as a listener question into the Q and A's that I used to do. Um, and this is particularly from Q&A 154 or Zomi 1 Underground episode 318. It was titled Egypt Tech. Um, I had a conversation in that that went about half of the Q&A. That's included here as well because that speaks to, and that's from June 26, 2019, just a week or two before I did my review of Spaceships of Ezekiel. Um, that is directly relevant to... Uh, the subject of the spaceships of Ezekiel and also the overall point of, you know, Torah being this, you know, basically this almost a Starfleet manual, if you wanted to use Star Trek terms. Um, but it, it gets, it starts going in that direction. So you'll get both of those from 2019. You will also get here the, what is the conclusion or last chapter effectively. And it's not long. I mean, I recorded it. It's three minutes recorded or, you know, landed, I guess, as they'd say, uh, <laughs> in the market, uh, it's three minutes landed. Um, I basically, I recorded Ahmed Osman's entire last chapter, which gives you his whole conclusion from the Egyptian origins of King David and the temple of Solomon. Like it, it basically tells you everything. It just doesn't present necessarily the, all of the evidence that is included with throughout the rest of the book. Now I've linked to the book in the show notes. I've also linked to the original versions of all these episodes. So you can see, but you know, I, I definitely implore you also to read that book for yourself and it's not a terribly long book. Okay. But at least you'll get where I'm coming from when I made the claim that about a quarter of Torah towards the beginning is actually uh, Egyptian history. And, you know, and the names were, were screwed up and you'll see what name you'll hear what names are screwed up and what it all means and blah, blah, blah. You'll believe me, you'll get inside of three minutes. It's pretty impressive. Uh, just again, to get the evidence, I want you to read the book for yourself. Okay. And it's an impressive uh, piece of work. I heartily recommend all of Ahmed Osman's books, even going back to uh, Stranger in the Valley of the Kings. I mean, that's a tremendous piece of archaeology because a lot of people actually give uh, Ahmed Osman, they, they like to say he engages in bad archaeology. I disagree. I think most mainstream, quote unquote, uh, archaeologists engage in bad archaeology because they cover shit up, as I've brought up many times. And that's not a matter of conspiracy. That is a matter of fact that you can point at. Now, Ahmed Osman's, uh, you know, King David book that came out in 2019. So, you know, it plays well within the time frame of much of the clips that I have included here. Um, and I've date stamped them as we go through the episode. So, you, you know, you'll hear it. It'll say when, what I'm about to say, you know, was, was originally talked about. Now, what I've also included is the first thing we'll go to is the concluding chapter from Ahmed Osman's book. Okay. That's the first thing that, that we'll go to, uh, as soon as I'm done with this, you know, original opening, but then 
uh, we will actually go to another point that I think many found controversial that thankfully, (laughs) at least to me, I did an entire episode of the user podcast about, and that episode uh, was entirely about the story of how basically the Jews lost Torah and then claimed to have found it again. And it describes, well, some of the, some of the issues around that. So you'll get that complete episode of the user podcast. Again, you get the complete episode of the book review spaceships of Ezekiel, which goes over an hour. You have the clip of Egypt tech from the Q and a that I did. And you also have the conclusion and thus basically the entire theory, even though I, I consider it more than theory, uh, that Ahmed Osman lays out at the end of the Egyptian origins of King David in the temple of Solomon from 2019. So you're getting a very complete package here that tells you a story. Now it's not exactly presenting because this is a significantly longer conversation. Okay. It's not exactly presenting all of the evidence to suggest that, you know, the Pentateuch or Torah, or like say the book of Leviticus, maybe more particularly go down. You know, I mean, it's, it's interspersed. It's not exactly presenting the evidence for Torah being the, the spaceship manual or the space survival manual, or maybe it's just an airship, you know, it might not necessarily be a spaceship, but I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to either of those. Uh, it's not exactly presenting that evidence. That's something that we'll explore down the line, but this is basically a starter kit. And I might even title it that this is a starter kit for understanding where all the problems exist within Torah. Why is it actually ancient? But then why is the interpretation and why is what we understand, what is commonly understood of it wrong? Okay. So it's not suggesting that it's a fabrication, just that it's wildly misunderstood. Uh, and you know, names have been changed and so on. So for me personally, as many have requested already, Hey, why don't you, you know, explain this a little bit more. This will be a reference episode that I can send people to, okay, here's the background that you need to know, and then we can build from there. And admittedly, much of this, much of these theories, if you want to call them that, uh, are part of the reason I started the user podcast and were eventually conclusions I was going to explore through that. Now, are there going to be new episodes of the user podcast? I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about that here, but yes, there will be. Okay. Like I said, 2021 is going to be an amazing year. And we will get there right down to what were these possible ancient, you know, technologically advanced civilizations that could have built the spaceships of Ezekiel and so on. I mean, all of that will get covered. That's a direction that we are heading. Okay. But for now here to begin to, to be the starter kit for the exploration of the idea of these, you know, advanced technologically advanced ancient civilizations or civilization X, as some researchers want to call it, uh, that, you know, a lot of this knowledge or even technology came down from. Uh, Yeah, this is your starter kit for that, to explore that and where the evidence exists within Torah for such things. And there's more than Torah to explore as far as this goes, as far as this theory goes. But it's a great starting point because just out of, be it a uh, uh, serendipity or, or 
blind, dumb luck, whatever it ended up having to be that made uh, these books be considered so sacred by really even more than just the Jews, right? I mean, the Greeks saw them, you know, respected them. Uh, I mean, you, there's there's a, a laundry list uh, of civilizations that, and, and many, I mean, Persia, you know, I mean, many ancient civilizations really respected uh, the, the, the book of books, as it were. Um, whatever allowed for that to happen, for it to get passed down, it's one of our best examples of looking back at history and extrapolating from, because it did get preserved as to where many others, unfortunately were either burned, forgotten, who knows, maybe one day would get found again. But while we're at it, while we're looking for more of that ancient history, again, here's your starter kit for those ancient who knows, airships, spaceships, uh, and the civilization that built them. So we'll start this historical joyride with, again, uh, a reading of the last chapter uh, of the concluding chapter, which lays out his entire theory uh, of the Egyptian origins of King David and the Temple of Solomon by Ahmed Osman from 2019. We'll go right to that, and then I'll let everything else successively follow and please feel free to send me your feedback questions at sovereigntech.com. Um, I would love to hear from you if you have any thoughts on this, especially if you think I'm dead wrong about anything laid out here. I would love to hear that too. And trust me, I can be very respectful about this particular, these particular theories in this conversation. So I would love to hear that uh, if you want to share it or of course, discuss it in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group. Uh, you have a lot of options. You can even hit me up on Twitter if you want, at Sovereign Tech. But for now, it's time to look at Torah and ancient history with new eyes. And I'm happy to be your guide. I'll let it ride out, and I'll see you on the other side. From Mythology to History Although the Bible has many mythological accounts, it also portrays some major characters as real historical persons. It is said that Joseph, the son of Jacob, after being sold as a slave in Egypt, became a minister and a close friend of the Pharaoh. These events are said to have taken place during the 17th century BCE, when the Hyksos, shepherd kings, ruled Egypt. The Bible asserts that King David established a great empire with its borders extending between the Euphrates and northern Syria and the borders of Egypt during the 10th century BCE. David is also said to have been succeeded on the throne by his son Solomon, who ruled the empire in peace and built a great temple in Jerusalem. The temple was built under the supervision of Hiram, known to the Freemasons as Hiram Mabif. During the 1400s, a Greek copy of the ancient Egyptian Corpus Hermeticum reached the Italian city of Florence and was quickly translated into Latin. This translation caused a great revelation within the Western world, which gave birth to the modern Renaissance. From these texts, the Grand Lodge of Freemasonry was established in England in 1717, and the Masonic central ritual formed around the Temple of Solomon and Hiram Abif, the legendary Phoenician architect whose name is based upon the biblical account as being responsible for building the temple. Freemasons associated Hiram Habif with Hermes Trismegistus, whom they regarded as the first teacher of wisdom and magic, and whose teaching eventually produced the Gnostic philosophy. In modern times, however, historians and archaeologists have completely failed to find any evidence to confirm the biblical accounts of these characters 
or of the existence of Hiram Abif in Phoenicia or his temple in Jerusalem. As a result, many serious historians have concluded that the kingdom of David and Solomon never existed. However, when we set aside biblical chronology and start looking for historical evidence, we do find confirmation of the Bible stories, only in different times and different locations. When we look in history for an empire that extended between the Euphrates and Egypt, we do find it exactly as the Bible describes it, not during the time of David in the 10th century BCE, but during the reign of Thutmose III in the 15th century BCE. We come to the same conclusion with the king of peace who inherited the empire. Again, we find him living in Egypt during the 14th century BCE and known as Amenhotep III. In these new dates, we can find evidence of the biblical account in all its details. When we realize that it was Pharaoh Thutmose III, not Abraham the Hebrew, who fathered Isaac, the ancestor of Israel, the biblical story moves from the realm of mythology to become part of history. Here we can see how, when the descendants of the two branches of Pharaoh Thutmose III were united, a new age of magic, wisdom, and knowledge was born. For while Sarah the Hebrew brought in the line of Isaac, Jacob, and David, Satya, his queen, brought in the line of Amenhotep II, Thutmose IV, and Amenhotep III. When Amenhotep III married Tai, the daughter of Joseph, Yuya, and made her his queen, the two branches of the pharaoh's descendants were united. Then, over a span of 150 years, they produced the first monotheistic belief system as well as philosophical teachings that we have to this day. It was during this short time that the historical background of the Bible stories, as well as the Hermetic philosophy later associated with Hermes Trismegistus and his magic, came to be. April 29, 2020 Power on! Greetings sapient being. Welcome aboard the Starship Alexandria. Prepare for the user podcast. Greetings, and welcome back aboard the Starship Alexandria. You know, you might be wondering why the Starship is named Alexandria after a city on old Earth. As you might have guessed, based upon our studies, it's not named after the city, but what was once housed in that city, the Library of Alexandria. Or the Great Library, as it was known to the ancient, though smarter than we give them credit for, peoples of the 3rd century BCE, as well as to those even beyond its destruction in the 3rd century CE. It was a universal library, holding all of the knowledge that humanity as a species had collected up to that time. The Great Library was a remarkable achievement that, while there were other universal libraries at the time, such as in Pergamum, has few peers even to this day. 
The loss of knowledge, discoveries that had been made, history that had been written down is veritably incalculable. And though some fragments have been rescued because of the great library in Alexandria's destruction, humanity is ultimately a species with a seemingly irreversible case of amnesia. While we may have some idea of how we evolved into the bipedal brain case we see in the mirror every morning, we have scant and often wildly varying details as to where human achievement and civilization began. Not that I'm suggesting those are interrelated. In this episode of the User Podcast, we'll begin to discuss some of those possible origins, how we got from there to here. While Alfred Russell Wallace's theory of evolution, which, to be clear, is a scientific fact and not theoretical, answers many of the questions of how we biologically arrived at our present state, the how and when the whole human enterprise began in a broader sense, how we invented writing, the first towns, agriculture, and so on, remains much up to debate. Perhaps the most famous story that we still have of how this whole human enterprise began is the biblical tale of the Garden of Eden. While generally considered a myth among scholars, the popularity of the concept of the Garden of Eden pervades, and despite massive evidence to the contrary, to some it is still considered historical fact as presented in the Christian Bible. The story goes something like this. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. And every plant of the field before it sprung up in the earth, and every herb of the ground before it grew. For the Lord God had not rained upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the earth. But a spring rose out of the earth, watering all the surface of the earth. And the Lord God formed man of the slime of the earth, breathed into his face the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God had planted a paradise of pleasure from the beginning, wherein he placed man whom he had formed. And the Lord God brought forth of the ground all manner of trees, fair to behold and pleasant to eat of, the tree of life also in the midst of paradise, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of the place of pleasure to water paradise, which from thence is divided into four heads. The name of the one is Pishah. That is it which compasseth all the land of Hevelah, where gold groweth. And the gold of that land is very good. There is found Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth all the land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Tigris. The same passeth along by the Assyrians and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took man and put him into the paradise of pleasure to dress it and to keep it. And he commanded him, saying, Of every tree of paradise thou shalt eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in what day soever thou shalt eat of it, thou shalt die the death. Now, all of this supposedly happened in 4010 BCE, that's 4010 BCE, and without getting into the conversation of why didn't Adam and Eve die the instant they ate the fruit like God said they would, 
It's important to note that this date is used by many Christians, particularly by what are known as young earth creationists. But it's a date that comes from the Hebrew calendar because the Garden of Eden is a story shared by both Jews and Christians, and to varying degrees by other Abrahamic faiths. What's important to note about this date, which starts at the end of the supposed literal seven days of creation from Genesis chapter one, but again, coming from Jewish interpretation, is that rabbinic Judaism itself has declared for centuries that the seven days of creation could not be literal. The date of 4010 BCE begins essentially from the time that Adam was created and not before. The rabbis realized what we've discussed in previous episodes of the user podcast, since there was no sun or moon until day four of the supposed seven days of creation, it's impossible for them to be literal 24-hour time periods. The seven days of creation is, at the very least, a metaphor. But is it anything more? Without getting into an entire history of Torah, or what is also known as the Tanakh, or what Christians call the Old Testament, a worthy subject for another time, Let's further discuss the literalness of this compilation of ancient texts, or more accurately, the lack thereof. First, let's go to one of the most revered students and commentators of the Tanakh itself, Rabbi Abraham Aben Ezra of the 12th century CE, a man who even has a crater on Earth's moon named after him, the crater Aben Ezra. Aben Ezra is considered not only one of the greatest biblical scholars and religious philosophers of all time, even beyond rabbinic Judaism, interestingly even the rebellious Spinoza revered him, but he was well known for his literalness of interpretation of the Tanakh itself, steering clear of rabbinical allegory and Kabbalistic mystical interpretations. If anyone was going to take the book of Genesis seriously and literally, it was going to be him. But that's the funny thing with Aben Ezra. He doesn't even believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible which the book of Genesis belongs to. Even centuries ago, he believed that they were written or redacted by someone else due to many of the inconsistencies in the book of Deuteronomy in comparison to the earlier books of the Pentateuch. Granted, a few inconsistencies does not necessarily an argument make, but does the Tanakh itself bolster Aben Ezra's claim directly in any way? Well, as a matter of fact, it does. In the Tanakh, there's a story in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22, that tells a fascinating story. The story of a king and a priest. It's the 7th century BCE in the kingdom of Judah. Its 16th king, King Josiah, was considered a righteous man and, according to the ancient text, he is responsible for a veritable renaissance, religious and otherwise, among his people, the Jews. This is the time just before what is known as the Babylonian Exile, when in 605 BCE, King Nebuchadnezzar II of the Neo-Babylonian Empire conquered the ancient kingdom of Judah and left the city of Jerusalem utterly ransacked and destroyed. Taking first the Jewish nobility to Babylon, the Babylonians eventually took most of the Jewish people there as well to become servants of the empire. But not too many years before then, the religious renaissance of King Josiah was in full swing, mainly from his edict to refurbish the temple of his ancestors, the Temple of Solomon. You see, according to the Book of Second Kings, Josiah's grandfather, King Manasseh, as well as his father, King Ammon, would begin allowing foreign cults to practice in the kingdom. Gods like Baal or the goddess Ashara were allowed to be worshipped in the temple, 
and even the popular and widespread Assyrian astral cult was promoted throughout the kingdom, the Assyrian Empire being a powerful force in the area at the time, having recently conquered Judah's northern neighbor, the Kingdom of Israel. All of this led to a certain decadence of Jewish religious practice, causing a widespread forgetfulness of Torah, a lack of worship for the Hebrew God, and a temple in practical ruins from the orgies, sacrifices, and overall fervor of more lively foreign worship than the temple was designed for. Commentators and even the text itself suggest that this led to the massive economic and quality of life downturn in the once prosperous Jewish nation. King Josiah's rejection of the practices of his father and grandfather's kingship was meant to be a return to the kingdom of Judah's former glory. Economically, and for the overall happiness of the kingdom, it seemed to be working. And then supposedly in 622 BCE, something remarkable was discovered during Josiah's reformation. The high priest at the time, a man named Hilkiah, was going through the rubble and renovations of the Temple of Solomon and discovered a book. But not just any book, the book of the law. Second Kings chapter 22 describes it happening this way. And Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought him word again concerning that which he had commanded and said, Thy servants have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and they have given it to be distributed to the workmen by the overseers of the works of the temple of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered to me a book. And when Shaphan had read it before the king, and the king had heard the words of the law of the Lord, he rent his garments. And he commanded Hilkiah the priest, saying, Go and consult the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book which is found. For the great wrath of the Lord is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened to the words of this book, to do all that is written for us. It's important to note that we know for a fact that the high priest Hilkiah existed, and at this time in the 7th century BCE, there is contemporary extra-biblical evidence that points out Hilkiah's name and position. This same amount of evidence can rarely be claimed for biblical figures, including the likes of King David, Jesus, or King Josiah himself. But what of the identity of this book of the law that was found, and why did King Josiah react so strongly to its reading? Rabbis and scholars have long believed that the book Hilkiah found was none other than the book of Deuteronomy from Torah. If you were to find a book of the Hebrew faith, it's probably the best one you could find. It retells much of the Exodus, gives a fairly full account of the life of Moses, has a recitation of the Ten Commandments, and confirms the supposed right of the Jewish people to live in the land of milk and honey, Jerusalem itself. King Josiah reacted so strongly to its reading because, in his supposed own words, he realized his kingdom was doing it all wrong. We don't know exactly for how long the ancient Judeans were without Torah, but it's abundantly clear from their own texts the Jews had lost it, forgotten it, weren't living it, only to fortunately, apparently, rediscover it. I say apparently because today some scholars suggest that Hilkiah and his priesthood, either in concert with the king or without him, invented the book of Deuteronomy or Torah in its entirety, 
But we should also note here that Hilkiah only found one book. There's no mention of the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. It's easy to argue that if King Josiah were remotely familiar with any of those books as we know them today, he wouldn't have had such a powerful reaction to the words read to him from this book of the law supposedly found by Hilkiah. In fact, as you go through the rest of the Bible's record of Jewish history, it's amazing how little the events of the book of Genesis are mentioned. Actually, they're not mentioned at all. It's proposed that there may be two, literally only two, allusions to the Garden of Eden, but that's all. It's, again, potentially alluded to. Adam, homo perfectus himself, is never discussed or looked to for inspiration in the rest of the Jewish scriptures. It's almost as if he or Noah or Enoch or any of these characters that had such a personal relationship with the Hebrew God weren't known of or had yet to even be thought up yet at the time of the kingdom of Judah. Abraham Aben Ezra's theory that the book of Deuteronomy didn't seem to fit in with the rest of Torah seems to have been well-founded, and his near-heretical questioning of the true source and authorship of the supposed books of Moses was the matter of a proud rabbi having contracted a case of intellectual honesty. To be clear, I'm not suggesting, and nor was Aben Ezra, that the entirety of the Tanakh is a fiction. In fact, I think there are quite literal, real events in history that happened that are recorded in it. I also believe that there is a purpose to every single Hebrew letter recorded in those ancient texts. Regardless of authorship or origin, the Tanakh is a beautiful book, an important book, but it's also a vastly misunderstood one. Trying to figure out whether or not Hilkiah invented the book of Deuteronomy or the book of the law that he found is a subject best for another time. But if Aben Ezra's suspicions are true and the earlier works of Torah were redacted from another source, what is the source? The answer might not be too far away from the time of Hilkiah himself. Only decades later, the Neo-Babylonian Empire would become the ruling force in the area under King Nebuchadnezzar II. As we mentioned before, the Babylonian exile would find most of the Jewish people in a new land with new customs, but interestingly enough, old ideas. You see, the Babylonians of that time were the descendants of none other than the Sumerians, long considered the oldest human civilization that we have extensive record of, or at least certainly more ancient than any of the civilizations we've discussed thus far, and we can get into a discussion around Gobekli Tepe later. The culture of Sumer is a massive subject in itself, but to discuss it for our purposes here, if there were any miracles in life, the astonishing amount of writings we have left from Sumerian culture would rank among them, with many of these writings coming to us from at least as early as 3500 BCE. Of course, part of the reason we still have many of the writings and myths from Sumer is because Sumerian heritage would last well into the 3rd century CE, and it's arguable that many empires in the area would simply copy and paste or absorb much of Sumerian culture into their own, or declare it as their own, much like ancient Rome took its pantheon of gods from the ancient Greeks. And that points to what Aben Ezra may have picked up on. For example, the Sumerian origin stories are some of the most descriptive and oldest origin stories we have, and would even well predate the time when Moses could have written the autographs of Torah, if he even did. These origin stories all sound awfully familiar, too, for those that know some of the stories in Genesis. There's a great flood, a paradise garden, a tree of life, the Tower of Babel, and so on. In fact, as far as the Garden of Eden is concerned, 
The word Eden itself likely comes from the Sumerian original, that being Eden with an I, which means area of flat terrain. Not only that, but the term for man or the first man in the Sumerian creation myths is none other than Adamu, a precursor to Adam. And that's just it. The Sumerian myths, which would later become Babylonian myths, even down to the Neo-Babylonian Empire thousands of years later, all read like a precursor to what we now know as the creation stories of the book of Genesis. Is this how the rabbis filled in the blanks about their origins, which the book of the law that Hilkiah found, or perhaps wrote himself, had no commentary on? Does this answer Aben Ezra's and Spinoza's questions about where the information in early books of Torah came from? Think we're speculating too far? We don't have to speculate. To some degree, we know for a fact that Judaism absorbing elements of Babylonian practices already happened. Take, for example, Rosh Hashanah, what is now celebrated as the Jewish New Year. Generally happening in the month of September of the Gregorian calendar, it's a day that Jews today know how to celebrate based on a verse in Leviticus and later rabbinical expansion. But the term Rosh Hashanah itself is not in Leviticus. It's only to be found in the book of Ezekiel. There it's only used once and has nothing to do with the Jewish New Year, nor is what's described in Leviticus a New Year celebration. How Rosh Hashanah, the first of rabbinic Judaism's high holidays in a year, came into being was that the Judeans in Babylon, well, did as the Babylonians did. They saw the Babylonians celebrating their new year, again in September generally, which for the Babylonians was based on an economic agricultural cycle, and the Judeans basically wanted one of their own. So they took a type of celebration they had written down and applied it to the Babylonian New Year, creating Rosh Hashanah. You might think I'm making a controversial statement here, but I'm not. The Babylonian New Year being absorbed into Rabbinic Judaism is well documented and known by its own practitioners today. Not uninterestingly, Rosh Hashanah is also declared as the celebration of the creation of Adam and Eve, their birthday as it were, and its very concepts of forgiveness are based around the Adam and Eve story. Two characters that aren't even mentioned outside of Genesis in the Tanakh, but still tying this whole conversation right back to the Garden of Eden and humanity's origins. And this is just one example. The idea that the ancient Judeans filled in some of the blanks of their own supposedly recently rediscovered religion by Hilkiah with Babylonian Sumerian practices is not a matter of theory. It's fact. It happened. With all of this, one thing is abundantly clear. There's more to the Tanakh and its story of humanity's beginnings than we're oft led to believe. Perhaps we need to look more at these Sumerian creation stories to find the answers about how the Garden of Eden fits into the narrative of the origins of our human enterprise. And we'll do just that in the next episode of the User Podcast. June 26th, 
2019. So I got this from another email from, uh, wow, well, this might be the most special person on the planet. Um, let's see here. Dr. Sovereign. Oh, I like that. I like that. Dr. Sovereign. Well, wait, I opened up the show with that, but I like this. Dr. Sovereign. People have always wondered and tried to theorize about the ways that the Egyptian pyramids were built. Boy, Stallion breaking in. No fucking kidding, right? <laughs> There's about as many theories around that as there are theories of, um, well, anything. Uh, let's move on. What do you think? Did the Egyptians merely have Stone Age tools, or are modern, modern archaeologists avoiding a few necessary truths about their technological achievements? Thanks. And, and this is in uh, an asterisk here. An anonymous supporter. P.S. You are most definitely the sexiest man alive. Wow, who the hell sent this? This anonymous supporter and calling me the sexiest man alive. I, I, I'm shocked here. Anyway, <laughs> let's, let's get to the email. Let's get to the question. Actually, it looks like at the bottom of this email, it looks like, looks like some hieroglyphs here. It looks like the letter E-L-L-E-N. Can't imagine who that is. Again, looks like looks like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. I don't know. That's that's so strange. So, but uh, yeah, it's sexiest man alive. How about that? All right. Um, reading on with the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, did the Egyptians merely have Stone Age tools, or are modern archaeologists avoiding a few necessary truths about their technological achievements? Yeah. So, great question. Um, yeah, I think that they're missing. All right, so I've, I've brought this up many times, but this is important to repeat because this needs to get hammered in people's heads because I don't think that they, I don't think they either A, realize this or they just don't want to accept it. In the modern world, the idea that everybody, okay, or that most people have a smartphone, right? Or that most people, like we were just talking about, have access to Facebook, that is an outcropping of one thing, the industrial age. That is totally about the industrial age. That is about the, uh, you know, the assembly line process, all these things that came together to allow for the democratization of technology. Okay. That now that makes us, the thing is, is that creates a false sense of advancement in today's world. Okay, this is, I, I want to drive this point home, but then I'll, I'll get specific. Okay, so the false sense of advancement that, that, that the industrial age created, that the democratization of technology created, is that somehow we, in the 20th, you know, if you want to go 19th to 21st century, if you want to go that far, that we are like the first advanced, or we are the first people with any kind of real advanced technology. Now, advanced technology can be a very broad term. Okay, but that we're the only ones maybe that have uh, that have had access to electricity. We're the only ones that have had the you know all the things that you think of today, whatever technological achievement you want to imagine. But that's not necessarily true. You think that because you don't see signs of it in the past. But what you take as your basis for signs of that being so being the truth in the past is that. Well, we would, we should find, you know, there should be smartphones everywhere, or there should be cars everywhere. There should be engines everywhere. There should be airplanes everywhere. There should be all these things because you think that technology inherently to be developed has to be democratized. Democratized meaning everybody has access to it. That is not a given. That is not true at all. Okay. So what the point I'm making is that 
there could have been advanced technology in the past. It could have been developed. And to some degree, we have some proof of this, right? Where you have the potential for where an ancient Roman made a, made a steam engine. Okay. I mean, now that's not the most advanced thing, but that's pretty damn good. And I think when the steam engine was first getting developed, probably not a lot of people thought that the ancient Romans had what they considered to be the most advanced, uh, I mean, almost to the point of a state secret at the time. So ancient humans, our ancestors, could have had wildly advanced technology. Now, maybe it wasn't wildly advanced. That's a guess. But could have had very, let's just say they could have had advanced technology, and we wouldn't know it because there'd only be maybe one or two of them, like maybe that steam engine, ever made. And so we'd have to find those like a needle in a haystack. Okay, and... So, but that's the problem is, is that most people think it's like, oh, well, if they had it, we'd see signs of it. Not necessarily. Maybe it was something, maybe it was a technology only royalty had access to. And you say, well, how could they build it if they didn't have like, you know, like the industrial revolution, if they didn't have the assembly line process and all these other things. That's because look, I mean, royalty had the power, uh, you know, perceived power of God on earth, right? Meaning that they could, you know, tax you for everything. They could you know, have entire slave, uh, 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 not, not slave gangs, but you know, they uh, slave workforces, which they did. You could have entire slave workforces, all of these things that would allow them to really achieve incredible things like perhaps the great pyramids, uh, without needing to have the assembly line, without needing necessarily, you know, to have like everybody on planet earth or everybody within their empire or civilization, whatever, having access to it. Okay, it really could be just something fucking incredible built for one person in the entire empire, perhaps the pharaoh or the emperor or whatever. So you got to get that out of your head, that the evidence that our ancestors weren't advanced is because you don't find technology all over the place. It's not a given that technology not being all over the place is somehow proof that it wasn't developed in the past. Okay. So we got, we got that part that, that has to be driven home. It is entirely possible that advanced technology existed in the past. It just wasn't democratized. So you don't see the evidence for it. Okay. And because it's not democratized, you don't even get to see it. Uh, cause you know, technology, for example, the car, okay. The, the automobile, the automobile brings on, you know, the, the, the bane in the libertarian side, that being the roads. I'm kidding about that. <laughs> it's not the bane libertarians have answers for the roads. It's just, you People know that trope anyway. Uh, so, or that really, it's a joke now. Um, but you know, the automobile is what brings on the, you know, paved roads, right? So, but because, you know, the only reason paved roads necessarily became a thing was really because the automobile was a democratized technology. And so everybody needed roads. And so cities and how humans lived and civilizations started to build up around these paved roads or the roads that were there before changed and expanded. I mean, this still happens to this day where, you know, a two lane highway turns into a five lane highway and so on. Okay. Based upon how many people there are and the technology available, etc. Okay. So, but that's the thing is that if the technology say in ancient times wasn't democratized, you would not see signs of it in these, in, you know, in their cities, in their civilization. Not really, maybe a little bit if you've actually found it, but you, that point has to, we, you know, we, we got to put that one. You got to have that at your centrality of whenever we're talking about 
anything, especially like the Great Pyramids, where you look at it and you go, how the fuck did they do that? Because, yeah, your instant, like the question asker, you know, like they brought up, was it just stone tools? There's no reason that it had to be. There could have been some kind of technology at the time that only the pharaoh or the priesthood, whoever, had access to. And they could only and and they used it only for their buildings. And in fact, if it was a unique technology, that might explain. In fact, it's it's that that effect of democratized technology in reverse. Okay, one of the weirdest things about the pyramids, okay, is that compared to all other almost all other Egyptian uh, uh, architecture is that you go into temples, you go into any of these buildings, you know, where, where, that the, the Egyptians built, ones that don't impress as much, say, as, uh, you know, like Khufu's Pyramid, which there's a problem with that. I don't, I don't believe that that graffiti was real. I think that that was a, that was a fraud uh, to, to claim that the Great Pyramid was built by Khufu. Um, but anyway, th- we just make that point. We're going to move on. We, you know, that's something, if you want to ask about that, we can go into the evidence around that. Um but in any, almost any other Egyptian, ancient Egyptian building, you know, from, you know, old kingdom, middle to new, you see within it, there's tons of hieroglyphs, right? There's tons of writing. You, in fact, you know exactly how they built a lot of these other buildings uniquely, almost uniquely. The Sphinx is another one, but rare in a rare case, the pyramids have no writing about how they were built. All you had was the graffiti found that said Khufu's name. That's about it. There is no other writing, and it is a stark contrast. And if you ever actually go to Egypt and look around, you're going to notice it. You might not, you might not consciously notice it, but unconsciously, it's part of what makes the pyramids feel special. Is that they are different from every other Egyptian building around. Now, I would argue, and I have said this in the past, I would argue actually it's because the pyramids are not Egyptian at all. The Egyptians were effectively squatters. Okay, they found the pyramids and they decided to build their civilizations or a civilization around them because they looked at them and they go, holy fuck, what are those? Must be something around here. And of course, eventually they do find other things. And that we could get into a big story around that. Um, in fact, I did my Audio of the Ancients, which you can find at audiotheancients.xyz. Um, the first one I ever did was the Dream Stealer of Thutmose IV. Thutmose IV was a uh, pharaoh who he had a dream, and that's why they call it the Dream Stealer, which is basically a story of, well, the story is how he found the Sphinx, not how he built it, how he found the Sphinx, okay? So in this, he has this dream where the Sphinx is talking to him, and there's no reference really to the Sphinx before this, so it would appear that Thutmose IV was the first one to find it. Now, it gets claimed generally that someone else built it, but, you know, but it's an Egyptian. But according to the dream steel itself, the first hand, quote unquote, the first hand account, the Sphinx is talking to Tutmos in his dream and says, you know, basically says, unbury me, get me out of here. And, and that's apparently exactly what happens is Tutmos the fourth sends out his guys and, you know, slaves and they unbury, they find under the sands exactly where the Sphinx told him in his dream, they find the Sphinx. They didn't build it. They found it. Now, the Egyptians might have altered the face of it to where they put a face on it, because originally it was probably a lion. There's a pretty good bet that it was actually a lion, because like putting the headdress on it was probably originally a mane. It was a lion's mane. 
Okay, or some people have some other ideas that maybe it was Horus. I'm not opposed to that, but the idea of it being a lion, I think that fits in with the facts a little bit better. So, now again, folks, if you think I'm going to talk aliens, no. Like, it's not aliens, and I'll get into that in a second too, but I'm not going to say it's aliens. This is not some ancient aliens uh, business. So, anyway, um, with the pyramids, the point I was making was that because it is so different from every other building around, that actually is highly suggestive that some other technology, besides what everything else in Egypt was built with, was used to build the pyramids because they are so starkly different. Now, there's a lot of pyramids. There's more than just the three, you know, like the pyramids of Giza. There are other pyramids, okay? And some of those don't follow the same rules where actually they do have writing in them. And it's very easy to see the way that they're built because they're kind of similar to maybe some in South America and wherever else, which there's certainly a story to get into around that. But it's very easy to see how they were built because, like, they they're more of like a stepladder style as, to, as compared to like the straight flat, and they don't have like like the the queen's chamber. They don't have like the crazy chambers and uh, um, you know other things that make particularly the Great Pyramid of Giza so unique. Um. So now, how exactly were they built? Do I have a theory? No, I I I don't have a theory. But here's here's the rub with me is that the theory I do have, and it's not just my theory, understand that you have the, what's the, was it the Turin's King's List, which goes back some odd 80,000 years from today. Okay, so from the time of ancient Egypt, you're still going back, you know, some odd 70, you know, 75, 78,000 years, or no, not not 78, but yeah, I guess like 76, 75,000 years, you're going to be going back in time that they have recorded history for. Okay? Now, I mean, you could say that that list is made up or something. It has gods and demigods on it, but that's not all it has. So they were, you know, either they were mixing in some uh, fiction with their nonfiction, or that list to some degree is nonfiction, and the gods maybe are just misunderstood. Anyway, point being, regardless of, of what these, you know, pe- who these people are that are on the Turin's Kings list, regardless of who they are, who they really are, Egyptians accepted and wrote down a human history that goes back 60 to 70,000 years further back than anything else we've got. Okay. Where did they get all of this information? Especially since it's, it's kind of rare. Um, you know, is it something that, is it information they found out about when they got to whatever this, this roving population was when they ended up getting to, uh, to Egypt? Is, is that how they found it? I mean, it's, it's a great question to ask, but I think the fact that they have history that goes that far back means that they knew something of it. And I think that the pyramids themselves are part of that ancient history for the ancient Egyptians themselves. I really do think that they just kind of, in fact, there's even, there's the Sumerians who are an older civilization than the Egyptians, even though to some degree they could be contemporary later on. Um, But regardless of that, the Sumerians, they even have uh, merchant records where they are talking about effectively ziggurats that are, which is their version. And they're not like pyramids, but kind of, but basically they find these ziggurats in the area where the pyramids were now how exactly are the sumerians who were around a good few hundred to you know thousand or however long before the egyptians were a thing how are they talking about these gigantic structures in the area of what would become egypt before the egyptians even built them you've got a problem there 
so and some people want to say well we're mistranslating you know these these merchant uh, uh records from some from the sumerians and blah 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 i mean and hey you know what maybe there are time mistranslations are a very real and legitimate thing Okay, but then also, so are, you know, forgeries are a real thing, and most people don't want to call that out as long as it fits in with their archaeological narrative. Another important thing to bring up is that archaeologists will absolutely lie and fudge evidence if it fits their overall narrative and their sensibilities. That's the most important part, their sensibilities. We have countless cases where archaeologists would hide their findings in secret rooms in museums. This is not bullshit. Okay, I mean, like, the, the there's a statue in that Italian museum, very famous, where uh, a Roman guy is, like, sucking a goat's cock. I'm not kidding. Um, you have where, you know, at, at certain sites where there'd be frescoes with these, uh, you know, like, like lewd sexual acts. I wouldn't call them lewd. Or if they are, then they're probably fun. Uh, but these lewd sexual acts on the wall in some temple or something like that or some, well, frankly, you know, a brothel. And they would cover them up with plaster of Paris just to keep their narrative that, no, the people we are exploring, the city we are exploring right now, they were a holy people. Just so that they could keep that narrative, regardless of the evidence that suggested clearly fucking otherwise. Or maybe they considered sex a sacred thing, which, hey, right on. So these are all the things you kind of have to put together to say, like, are we missing parts of the picture of what happens? What, how did the pyramids get built? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think the most important part of the picture, or the two most important parts are, that we're only trying to come up with solutions based upon Stone Age tools, which that should not be accepted as a given. Now, you don't want to run to aliens. I don't think aliens have ever been to Earth. I mean, folks, we have things called the laws of physics, and I don't even think they're breaking them. But I don't think aliens have ever been to Earth. That's a conversation I've had it many times on Sovereign Tech. Fermi paradox. There's your answer. They're not out there. I mean, there's some out there. I do believe that aliens, like and, and I mean sapient aliens, intelligent aliens, do exist in the universe, but I just think they're very few and far between. But the first thing to accept is that you know we're we're not thinking outside. I, I, I hate this phrase, but we're not thinking outside of the box. To where maybe they had some kind of advanced technology. We're not willing to accept that because we don't see it, and the average archaeologist and average person just wants, you know, is, is stuck in this mode that if they had this technology, we would see it everywhere. When again, that is not a given in the historical record. It's not a given part of that. Okay. So we've got that. And then we have the entire fucking issue of whether or not the Egyptians built them in the first place. And I think the evidence that they did build them when supposedly Khufu ordered it and so on is specious at best. And I think there's just as much evidence, which you could call specious, but then I'd say it's just as specious as your fucking graffiti um, that suggests otherwise, that suggests the pyramids had been there long before there was an old, middle, or new kingdom in, in, you know, in, the, in, in the Egyptian empire. So, uh, yeah, I mean, those are, if, if there were necessary, I like the way that, that uh, I mean, obviously this emailer is just one of the most brilliant people on the planet. I love the way that, that this was asked, you know, is, are there, are they avoiding a few necessary truths about their technological achievements? Yes, there are necessary truths. And I laid out two big ones that they are completely avoiding as far as that goes. Um, who, you know, so, I mean, do you want to ask me, like, do I have a theory? I don't have a theory on how they were built. 
Um, I would be very open to that in some kind of advanced technology, maybe even one that we don't have today was used to build the pyramids. I'm totally open to that. What that would look like, I don't know. And, I mean, we do know that the Egyptians had access to electricity, right? I mean, there's the Baghdad battery. That's something I think everybody should know about uh, because, it, I mean, that will change your fucking tune as far as the idea that we're the first people to understand electricity. Okay, only in the past, you know, so many hundred years, so many hundreds of years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, it, it could be a technology that's based, that's not like... Uh, you know, not silicon based or whatever. I don't know. I mean, like there's, there's a lot of, a lot of questions to, to have there. So I don't know where to speculate with that. Where I am comfortable speculating is that absolutely. I think that our ancestors and maybe ancestors that we don't have a record for as in, they go way, they come from way, you know, like, you know, from either Gobekli Tepe or even beyond that, which Gobekli Tepe is at least 14,000 years old. Maybe it goes even further or at least 12,000 years old, anyway. Um, you know, that, that there were perhaps human civilizations, very human, that were wildly advanced and that we don't have the evidence for. You know, we just, we don't see the signs of them, but maybe it's because it was so long ago. Um, there was a, in fact, we talked about it on Sovereign Tech when, when uh, this talk was given. There was a talk given at Harvard by very respected uh, researcher, not some ancient alien guy, okay? Like the real deal. And he basically came out and said, you know, if, however, on a long enough timeline, he, he went from millions of years to even a few hundred thousand. If there was an advanced civilization, then we would have no proof that they even existed today. We really wouldn't. Now, and, and he's meaning you wouldn't have proof of their advancements. I think you do have proof that there were advanced human, not alien, human civilizations and that evidence is the fact is the things that, that you know that that stood the, the the test of time and those things were made out of stone like the great pyramids and perhaps other uh, uh you know these amazing stoneworks uh, that that you see you know you know like megalithic uh, uh sites that you see around around the world um i think a lot of them are evidence of these far more ancient civilizations human civilizations than archaeologists and anthropologists are willing to admit existed. So there you go. There, there's, there's my answer on that. I, I think that there was an advanced civilization that made the pyramids. Who were they? Well, then that turns into a whole other fucking conversation, but I think they were there. And I think our ancestors knew about them, had some kind of idea about them. You know, is it Plato with Atlantis? Is it the Turin Kings list? Is it the Minoans? That's an interesting place to look. Um, well, conversation for another time. July 7th, 2019. The man of tomorrow is here, but it's one of those occasions. Well, a couple of great occasions. It's one of those occasions where I'm more the man of the past, <laughs> the ancient past at that. Uh, being a man of the past would be boring as fuck. I wouldn't want to be some guy from the 50s, but uh, 1950s. But, um, you know, the ancient past. Oh, you know how much I love that. Uh, also, the other joyous occasion here is that I get to do a book review, which is one of my favorite things to do, uh, especially for bonus content for the Zomia One Underground. And we have a doozy, uh, one, a book that I hope leads to, well, a lot of other conversations and actually plays off of some conversations that we've recently had, um, well, on Sovereign Tech, as well as in other Zomi One Underground content, including uh, recent Q&As. 
But the book we're talking about here is actually from 1974, uh, and it's The Spaceships of Ezekiel by Joseph F. Bloomrich, who Joseph F. Bloomrich, by the way, was at, well, one of the head guys at the Marshall Space Flight Center for NASA. Now, understand that he was one of the head guys there while he wrote this book. I mean, I think a lot of people, I can think of a few names that come to mind or various politicians or other agents, say, of the government that would come out and say, oh, there's UFOs. You know, they'd make all these wild claims after they're out of whatever respective office, uh, not respected, but respective office that they were a part of. Um, Bloomrich was very much you know, holding his position, uh, and it was a top position at the Marshall Space Flight Center. I mean, we're talking about literally one of NASA's top rocket scientists. This guy was the real deal. Okay. Uh, he died in 2002, by the way. So, I mean, he's, he's gone now. Um, but yeah, 1974, he was one of the top minds in the United States. And that is a very important thing to keep in mind because I think just when you hear the title, the spaceships of Ezekiel, uh, you're probably instantly going, you know, you you just looking at, look at the camera, like Giorgio Tsoukalos aliens, right? You know, you got a whole ancient aliens thing going on here. Now, certainly this book has been covered in the history channel shit show. I mean, uh, uh, documentary series that's might want to put that in quotes, uh, <laughs> ancient aliens, um, which admittedly I do watch. In fact, I can't believe it's in its 14th fucking season as of this recording, which is in 2019. But unlike you know, a lot of what gets put on display in ancient aliens, um, Bloomrich again was the real deal. Uh, he was coming at this from a very, very, you know, from an engineering perspective, from a very scientific perspective, he was looking at what he considered to be the evidence in the book out of Torah or the old Testament, depending upon your, uh, faith, uh, or way you look at the world, I suppose. <laughs> um, you know, from, from the book of Ezekiel, the prophetic book, the book of Ezekiel, and we'll break down into the book of Ezekiel. We're going to break down into the book spaceships of Ezekiel itself. Um, you know, we'll get into a lot of that and perhaps some other extant works as well, but it's important to keep in mind that this is not the sensationalized and the rampant and wild and often unjustified speculation. Uh, you know, it's none of that that gets put on display often enough in ancient aliens. Now to understand where Bloomrich was coming from, basically Bloomrich was, uh, so, well, you have a book that comes out in 1968, which is also very much the basis really of a lot of ancient aliens, starting from the very first, uh, good, you know, two hour though, without commercials, hour and a half, a documentary that started so many years ago. Was that around 2000? Was that, was that 2008, 2009, 2010, maybe even, it's weird because I know there's 14 seasons of ancient aliens, but it hasn't been going for 14 years. Anyway, whenever the first one that kind of started the whole shebang, um, I mean, look, ancient alien, it actually was, it was a show that was trying to be scientific for, I want to say it's first, like the first documentary that came out, there was that initial documentary before they made, before history channel made it a series. It was actually pretty good. Uh, like, I, I mean, I don't agree with the, the answer of extraterrestrials or the earth. Let me be more clear. I don't agree with the conclusion that it's aliens, that it wasn't humans that have done a lot of what they talk about in ancient aliens. 
but they were at least trying to like, they would bring on experts who would try to verify the evidence or they would try to falsify their claims. They stopped doing that around season three, I want to say. Um, but the first, the first, uh, documentary and the first couple seasons, they re- there's, there are some dynamite episodes in there. And again, I think they were really trying to stay within the realm of not so rampant speculation. Okay. Uh, and they, again, they did try to falsify their claims a little bit. They tried or at least they, they, they gave you the perception that they were doing that. So I, you know, I want to give credit where credit's due, but anyway, ancient aliens, you know, certainly was inspired just as Bloomrich was by Eric von Daniken's seminal work from 1968, that being chariots of the gods. Uh, this book, this book's effect on so many aspects of culture all around the planet it can really cannot be understated. I mean, this was a wildfire book, um, really, really shook things up. Uh, so in fact, the first time I ever heard about it, I was a seventh day Adventist at the time. And I watched a, Oh man, what was it called? The the message or something like that. I, Oh fuck. I can't remember. There was a very, very, so seventh day Adventists are, were really big, on having like their own networks and they would, they would be satellite networks. Okay. Now in the, I don't want to get too lost on this, but back then, like in the nineties and even into the aughts and so on. Um, I mean, here's another place where I'll credit where credits due. seventh day Adventists really are on the, they, they're always on the bleeding edge of technology. Um, they're on the bleeding edge of MP3 players where when MP3 players became a thing, they got a bunch of them would put the Bible on it and they'd drop it off in parts of the world where maybe the language of the, you know, the indigenous people, um, you know, wasn't written down. Like they didn't have a written language. So they would just drop off MP3 players, the speakers on them or whatever that would say the Bible, you know, because that would, they figure once, you know, for seventh day Adventists, once every eye or ear has either seen or heard, uh, effectively the, the glory of the Lord, you know, when they've heard the, the word of the Lord, that being Christ, they believe that that's when finally Christ will come back. And so they are pushing really fucking hard and they have been for a couple, almost a couple hundred years now, uh, to, you know, to get every ear to hear it. And while there's certainly logical problems with that, of course, granted there's logical problems with, uh, you know, with, with Christian or with Judeo Christian, uh, uh, belief systems anyway, you know, they, they really are trying that. And so they, they, they're really big on doing like these closed circuit television events or these satellite events, or even now internet events. Um, you know, they do IPTV and a lot of this other stuff. And there was a, you know, what would happen is, is at a lot of seventh day Adventist churches, they would hold, you know, these, these big events. I mean, you kind of imagine it like, so if you're into wrestling, WrestleMania one, right. Was that back in 85 WrestleMania one, was a closed circuit, uh, 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 event. Okay. You could go to the actual to Madison square garden where the event was held, or you could go to a local, like a, a stadium or something that would have a huge screen in there and everybody would buy a ticket and it was closed circuit television, meaning that you, you'd go to the, to the, this, this place, you know, you go to a stadium, whatever, and you'd go there and you'd watch the event. Pay-per-view wasn't, re- you know, with cable wasn't really a thing yet. And you'd go there and you'd watch it as if like you were going to the event itself. It was, uh, I mean, it's pretty interesting stuff and wild stuff. Okay. Now, Seventh-day Adventists have been doing this sort of thing as well. Uh, often though, the 
they'll do it for free. You don't have to pay to, to go and, and see whatever the uh, multi-night event is. And I remember seeing this one and the guy for Seven Day Adventist actually brought up Chariot of the God or Chariots of the Gods. And he was talking about all these different claims, you know, about the Ark of the Covenant and everything, because I think the point of the event was this guy was claiming that for the Seventh-day Adventists, and this guy was the Seventh-day Adventist, which Seventh-day Adventism, if you don't know, is just a, it's kind of an odd sect of Christianity. Um, it's, well, all right, I'm not going to get lost on that either. Anyway, he was talking about it, and they were talking about the Ark of the Covenant and all this, and so they were naturally trying to debunk Eric Von Daniken's work, okay? And a lot of people have been trying, or depending upon your perspective, have successfully debunked Eric Von Daniken's work. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Eric Von Daniken's work. I think actually some of what he's claimed has already been rampantly or what, you know, very easily and handily debunked over time. There's certain stones and some other things, uh, you know, where, where his, they've been proven to be, uh, frauds. Okay. Not that Von Daniken, uh, you know, was engaged in the fraud, but that it was a part of his book. And now, you know, if he was to do an edition today, maybe he should pull that chapter out because now we know that these things uh, are modern fabrications, right? Um, I mean, I, I think the crystal skulls for the most part are nonsense. I mean, you know, we could get into a lot of this different stuff, but that's not what we're here to talk about. But basically a lot of people for a long time have been trying to debunk this book, Chariots of the Gods, because it was so fucking popular and it got so many people talking about this idea or about the ancient astronaut theory, the idea that aliens or extraterrestrials, you know, came from the stars and ended up giving humanity or had some impact on humanity's development, um, on the earth. Now I'm a bigger fan of Zachariah Sitchin's work, like the 12th planet and so on. Not that there hasn't been plenty within Sitchin's work that also hasn't been debunked. There is, there's a lot that has, um, but regardless of that, also I was, you know, friends with Sitchin, but regardless of that, uh, and those books are somewhat contemporary, Bloomrich with spaceships of Ezekiel, getting back to that, he was actually on his mission was to debunk because I'm sure this is all the talk at NASA in the seventies or in the late sixties, even when the book, uh, you know, when chariots of the gods first came out, he was trying to debunk a lot of, uh, Eric Von Daniken's claims in chariots of the gods. And that's what started him down this path. The thing is, and he brings this up often in his book, spaceships of Ezekiel, is that Bloomrich goes, wait a minute, Von Daniken's not wrong. <laughs> There's some weird shit here. And, and he, you know, and he breaks it down. And so that's his claim to how he started down this path. Now, something to understand, uh, and we could bring up a lot of names, Jack Parsons, some others. Okay. There are a lot of people who had been, especially at that time. And some of which who were brought over from Germany through operation paperclip after, or, you know, as part of world war two or after, um, there are a lot of rocket scientists at this time or within this, like, you know, just within the, those few decades who are into some really wild shit. Okay. Uh, who are into some very occult shit and, and, you know, have some, some very wild ideas, uh, wild ideas that you could argue allowed them to have the imagination to come up with much of the space program that we have had for the past few decades. Uh, and again, Bloomrich is certainly, you know, one of the, could be argued as one of in that number. Okay. There's a lot more to say around that because unlike perhaps 
some of what what other parsons some others you know might might claim about their more occult theories or beliefs or ideas bloomrich actually walks away from his explorations into uh well the more speculative or the wilder side of of history of looking at history particularly the book of ezekiel he actually walks away from that with at least one invention at least one thing that has been practically applied uh, you know, to to the modern, you know, to modern civilization and to modern technology, which we'll talk about what that is. It's not the most exciting thing, but that is interesting that he reads the book of Ezekiel and he walks away with something with an idea that he goes, holy shit, you know, and he actually even patents it. We'll talk about that. Now, I was debating on which way to go with this, as in where to start. Do I start talking about the spaceships of Ezekiel, like, you know, describing what the book's contents are? Or do I start off with its source material, that being the book of Ezekiel itself out of Torah? Um, and I think I'm going to start off with talking about the book of Ezekiel itself and the character of Ezekiel, because I think this kind of colors and there's some interesting points about it that color. Well, again, color what Bloomrich does with the spaceships of Ezekiel in that book. So to understand the book of Ezekiel, perhaps we should talk about Ezekiel himself. Um, it is pretty widely believed in the Abrahamic faiths that Ezekiel was a very real person. In fact, his, um, his tomb is still in uh, Iraq. It's actually near Kafil, and that's, I think that's in southern Iraq. Um, I've been in Iraq, of course, when I was in the military. Uh, I did not happened to visit this area, though I would have been, certainly even at the time, I would have been intrigued uh, to do so. And there is, there's still, there's a, uh, well, I guess basically a abandoned synagogue uh, there where the tomb of Ezekiel is. But, you know, and, and you know, Muslims and Jews have all visited this place. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, Iraq is kind of not the easiest place to get into, if you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, today it's a little bit different, but certainly over the years, definitely a contested area. So how many people successfully did that? Whatever. Anyway, but that's genuinely believed to be the final resting place. This tomb of Ezekiel uh, in Iraq is considered to be the final resting place of Ezekiel. Understand that next to Israel, the area of Israel itself, Iraq is where the largest part of the Bible really takes place. It's, it's kind of the, you could call it the second largest geographic area of where events in the Bible take place. So keep that in mind, you know, when we talk about this sort of stuff. Um, but regardless, he's considered a very real person and that that tomb is totally legit. Again, there's been a synagogue there for quite some time, uh, even though it's, as I understand it, it's no longer, uh, you know, it's no longer in use. Um, Regardless of that, the final, there's some debate because there's years and dates given within the book of Ezekiel itself. It is the only book, the book of Ezekiel is the only book attributed to the prophet and priest uh, Ezekiel. Of course, he is a priest in the, he is a, he would be classified as a Kohanim. Uh, there's some debate as to what his lineage is. Some people say he's a son of Joshua and Rahab, uh, which is pretty important, but there's no debate over the fact that he is Kohanim, meaning that uh, Kohanim, so you have the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Um, the, but really you have 13, okay? There's the 12, but then there's the 13th tribe, which is the Levites, okay? And even within the Levites, which is the priestly class, the priestly tribe, they're the ones that handle all the priestly duties. 
you have kind of a sub-tribe within there, which are known as Kohanim. Um, and these are direct descendants of Moses's brother, Aaron. Okay. Um, like myself. Okay. So I have, uh, well, completely uh, Jewish ethnicity and I, uh, you know, I am a technically a genetically a, or ethnically a Kohanim. Okay. Um, now, I mean, and it's kind of weird, right? So to understand that, because you could say, well, wait a minute, Rahab wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly an Israelite. <laughs> like, you know, she was, well, anyway, there's the whole story around that. I'm not going to tell that story again, but you know, how does this, how does that square away? So to understand your, because most, a lot of people know that your Jewish ethnicity is passed down from your mother. Okay. That's, that's the, the Orthodox tradition and certain other, you know, Jewish traditions put it that way. Not everybody does that. Um, like I was recently reading Paul Stanley's new book, uh, that being backstage pass, you know, Paul Stanley of kiss. And he thinks that, you know, Oh no, no, that, you know, this idea that, that Jewish heritage is only matrilineal, that it's only through, through the mother. That's bullshit. Um, because he married, or I'm guessing he has kids through a woman that is not ethnically Jewish. Uh, but traditionally that's what's accepted. So while the, here's the important thing to understand and, and what makes things kind of complicated, while your Jewish ethnicity is quote unquote proven through natural, you know, through your mother being Jewish, your Kohanim status is through your father. So, you know, if your mother were Kohanim or was, was, a, you know, was the child of a descendant of Aaron, that does not mean that your that you are Kohanim. Okay. Your father has to be Kohanim. So basically to be Kohanim, to be a, 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 a quote unquote, true descendant of Aaron, your mother has to be Jewish and your father has to be the descendant of Aaron. Okay. Do you, do you get that? I know how confusing that is. Believe me, you <laughs> try growing up with this shit. So, <laughs> uh, and, and well, this is going to speak to, to a larger point here in a second. So anyway, uh, Ezekiel is a Kohanim. He's actually of the, what is known as the, 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 the house of Zadok, which Zadok, or he, he would be known as a Zadokite priest. Uh, Zadok is, was appointed by Solomon to be the high priest of Solomon's temple. Now, Ezekiel is someone who is alive during the Babylonian captivity, during the exile. Okay. In fact, uh, Ezekiel is, like I said, there's dates there. So there's some question of, did he start writing this book when he was 30? We have some idea of when the last words of Ezekiel were recorded, perhaps by Ezekiel himself, but we'll get into more of that context when we talk about the book of Ezekiel specifically. But Ezekiel, it's theorized by uh, rabbis, by rabbinic tradition, that he is the person, just to give you perspective. If you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were the guys that in the book of Daniel get tossed into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar because they refuse to bow to, uh, you know, to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Right. And they get thrown in the fiery furnace, but they survive, you know, and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar keeps saying, Oh, make it hotter, make it hotter. You know, because these guys, you know, these three guys just won't die. And then of course, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery pit and, uh, and then says, wait a minute, who's the fourth guy in there? Uh, and, and of course in the book of Daniel, it says, well, that is one like the son of man, or that is a, a, or, or like the son of God, not the son of man. Uh, and of course, Christians like to think that that fourth person was actually Jesus or perhaps a pre Jesus, that being like the archangel Michael, something like that, whatever. 
Okay, another conversation. But that story is very popular. A lot of people know the story of the three people get thrown, you know, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into the fiery furnace, uh, you know, by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the they now when when this order by Nebuchadnezzar goes out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are while Jews, are a big deal in the Babylonian court at the time. Much like Daniel, they're friends of Daniel, in fact, or arguably. Um, they go to ask somebody, hey, what do we do? You know, we have this order. We're not going to bow down to any idol. We're going to, you know, we only worship our God. And so, so you know, what do we do here? The, the tradition goes is that that who they asked was actually Ezekiel. So very holy guy. And, you know, how come Ezekiel or Daniel or whoever else did they bow down? How come they didn't get thrown into the fiery furnace? Sure. Yep. I don't know. <laughs> you know, those, those are, those are some of those uh, questions to be had out there, but maybe there's some answers in some things that really actually Bloomrich brings to light about the book of Ezekiel that I think are particularly fascinating. Uh, regardless, we'll get into that, but that's to give you some perspective of who Ezekiel was, where he was, when he was, uh, the last words of Ezekiel that we, we assume were recorded were around 570 BCE. Okay, so uh, again, is that when he died? We don't know. When was he even alive? We don't know. There's a guess that he was 30 years old when the book started, based upon, you know, within the first chapter of the book, which for many people is the most interesting. Um, That's all up to debate. But there's some history of who Ezekiel was. You know, a guy who has the right lineage and is really a top dog in the Hebrew faith. Uh, Again, he is both a priest and a prophet. Not the most common thing. Those, Those don't always equate. You know, sometimes you have priests who are just priests. Sometimes you have prophets who are just prophets. You don't always have the same thing or, you know, where they're, where they're the same, uh, where they come together, where it's a priest and a prophet. But Ezekiel is that, well, shall we say that holy. So there's some perspective on the character of Ezekiel. Again, he's pretty much considered to be like that. He actually exists and or existed. And one of those rare figures where, Traditionally, there's an idea of where he laid to rest, uh, which is also kind of rare. Um, Now, as to the book of Ezekiel, this is important to talk about. The book of Ezekiel is a very contentious book for a lot of reasons, particularly chapter one, which is a lot of what caught Joseph Bloomrich's eye and where a lot of the basis of the spaceships of Ezekiel Uh, comes from. Not all, but where a lot of it certainly comes from. So Ezekiel in Torah, that being the Jewish version of the Old Testament, uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that more, uh, is part of the Nevi'im, which the the Torah or the Tanakh, uh, which is the entire body or what would Christians would equate to the Old Testament, is not in the same order as it is in uh, the Christian version of the Old Testament. They're the same books, but they're not, it's not in the same order, uh, where the Jews kind of break it down by in in the Christian Old Testament. It's somewhat by chronology. Not exactly. It's not chronological because if it were chronological, the book of Job would be much earlier on. Um, but you know, it's, it's more by like, like era. Okay. As to where with the, you know, with the, with Torah or with the Tanakh, 
Um, Torah can just, Torah is a funny word. We've talked about this before on Zomi One Underground content, where Torah can just mean the first five books of the Bible. It can mean the Tanakh and the Talmud. It can mean a lot of different things. It can mean the entirety of Jewish teachings. There's, there's a lot of different ways the word Torah gets used. Okay, I could say Tanakh for clarity here from now on. But within the Tanakh, it's broken down by what, by the type of writing that it is. Is it the, the Pentateuch? Is it the books, you know, the five books of Moses? Is it a, a prophetic work? Is it a historical work? You know, the writings. Uh, and so you have different, it, things are broken up by that. The book of Ezekiel is in the Nevi'im, which is the, the prophetic works. Okay. And it, it's, it's, it's clearly classified as such. Now, the more, the most interesting part of the book of Ezekiel, and there's plenty of them. There's the, I mean, the prophecies, which we'll talk about this with Bloomrich because maybe they're not prophecies. Um, the prophecies though, what are traditionally considered prophecies, like the prophecy of the dry bones, which, uh, where the song, you know, Ezekiel called them dry bones. People know that song, the neck bone connects to the whatever bone, um, that comes from this book. Uh, the prophecy of the third temple, which is something that Christians and Jews have been waiting a long time for, uh, which can't happen right now because right now where the third temple is supposed to be is where the Muslim, uh, dome of the rock is. And you go trying and build a third temple on there. And you're going to have World War III on your hands, quite quite literally, actually, uh, because it is such an important holy site in Islam. Um, but, well, anyway, th there's a conversation to have around that. But there's that prophecy. There's quite a few uh, within, the, within the book of Ezekiel. It's a very important book. But it is a book that almost didn't make it into the Tanakh when uh, rabbis were compiling the, what we, you know, what Christians know of as the old Testament or what, you know, Jews know of as the Tanakh, as the Tanakh, when they were putting all that together, um, this along ironically with other, uh, contemporary books to it, like the book of Daniel were, well, they, they, it was, it was contentious. Like, do we include this? And I mean, some books, you know, didn't get included that, seem to have some, some degree of, 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 ancient history to it. Like say the book of Enoch, right? I mean, there's a lot of arguments to be had around the book of Enoch, but really all you have are, uh, the Christians and the Christians in Ethiopia who include that in their version of, uh, you know, of the Bible. Okay. Um, but like the book of Daniel wasn't going to make it, uh, originally into the Tanakh. We know that there was a lot of argument around that, but the problem was, is that with the, uh, Jewish people at the time, it was just such a popular book. People loved it so much uh, that, you know, basically the rabbis would have had a riot on their hands if they didn't include it into the, you know, holy text um, of the Hebrew people and, or, you know, the, the, the holy compilation, we should say, because really that's, that's what the Tanakh is. Um, and Ezekiel's one of those as well, where it almost didn't make the cut. And part of this, a big part of why that is, is because of chapter one, which gets into this. And you've probably heard this phrase before the wheel within a wheel, uh, where there's this, this crazy, the first chapter is this Ezekiel is seeing, you know, basically he's seeing the, the, the presence of God. He's in the presence of God. He's seeing these four creatures. He's seeing these wheel, you know, this wheel within a wheel. He's seeing all this wacky shit. He's hearing all this thunder. And, and I mean, it, it's very, very strange imagery. You know, you have these uh, seraphim with, you know, lion heads and six wings and all. The, I mean, it's just, it reads nuts, you know, and it's so nuts. In fact, while it did end up getting included into the Tanakh, Rabbis make it very clear. Don't you dare. And they've made this clear for a couple thousand years. Don't you dare 
read that first chapter of Ezekiel, if you aren't, if you aren't nothing less than a sage, basically a rabbi of Jewish tradition, because you know, you're going to come up when you read that it's so crazy. You're going to come out with the wildest notions. In fact, maybe notions as wild as well, what Joseph Bloomrich did with the spaceships of Ezekiel, which he's, as far as I know, not Jewish. And, uh, he really, you know, probably was not a sage in the Jewish tradition, because really to be that you probably don't have time to be a rocket scientist, but the Mishnah, you know, a, a Jewish holy text, very, very clear. Don't read that book unless you are just grounded in Jewish tradition and grounded in Torah. Don't, don't touch it. Uh, it's argued that the book of Ezekiel, particularly chapter one is where, uh, Kabbalah and, you know, a lot of Jewish mysticism all comes out of what the fuck is in chapter one of Ezekiel. It's that wild. Okay. Even within, you know, even from a spiritual or a faith-based perspective. Okay. Unlike, you know, Bloomrich, who's supposedly coming at it from an engineering or scientific perspective or a materialist expense, uh, perspective. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it's that open. It's that weird. It's that crazy. What the fuck did Ezekiel see? Now, an important thing to bring up here at this stage is that the book of Ezekiel, you got a few things going for it or kind of going against it. Okay. And Bloomrich brings a lot of this to light uh, rather properly. And I, and, and I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll let, I'll let this cat out of the bag. I think that the textual analysis that Bloomrich brings to, and, and kind of the oddities of the book of Ezekiel that Bloomrich brings to light are far more fascinating and have much broader ramifications than any kind of spaceship that he thinks uh, you know, he is uh, creating or that he thinks he's reading about within uh, the book of Ezekiel. And while some of what he says doesn't, you know, is, is also a longstanding tradition within the rabbinic tradition and analysis of the book of Ezekiel, it's still important to realize that a lot of what he brings to light is probably the first time anybody outside of the Jewish community uh, would know about uh, some of these things. For example, um, it's within rabbinic tradition that Ezekiel couldn't, or not couldn't have, but it's, it's, it's widely accepted, not that he couldn't have, but it's widely accepted that he, that Ezekiel himself did not write the entirety of the book of Ezekiel. It is something that was either collated, compiled, put together, uh, embellished upon, by later authors. Um, also there's the possibility that actually it was written by not just one person, uh, of Ezekiel, but actually like a house of Ezekiel, a group of people put this together. And because there are some oddities, okay. Where exam, for example, initially in the book of Ezekiel, you have Ezekiel talking in the ver in the first person. It, and that's somewhat rare actually within, uh, the Tanakh, uh, the book of Enoch is also, kind of, I mean, which isn't part of the Tanakh, but, you know, has, well, I mean, is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Essenes, which was one of the three major Jewish sects, Jewish sects, uh, in around the, uh, you know, around the first, well, around zero CE. Okay. You know, around that first century. Um, 
So, you know, the, the Book of Enoch has some historicity to it, okay? Now, I mean, people want to make arguments about where it seems to really... It, it predicts Jesus a li- with too fine a point at times, and so some people question whether or not those aren't later editions. Sure, um, but the Book of Enoch is rare in that it talks in a first person. The Book of Ezekiel kind of does the same thing. And, and, but then there's points where it's talking about Ezekiel in the third person. And so it kind of points at, okay, somebody was embellishing. Somebody was adding on at this stage. Okay. Um, and that's, that's accepted within rabbinic tradition. Okay. That's not something that Bloomrich is exactly, you know, was the first person to bring to light. That's accepted that this could be some kind of compilation, much like the book of Genesis is considered to have like five or six different authors. Uh, the book of Ezekiel, Kind of the same score. Now, before the book of Ezekiel gets included into uh, the Tanakh, it's also pretty clear, or it's, there's, there's also historical claims that rabbis at the time when the Tanakh was getting compiled spent a lot of time, well, frankly, editing the book of Ezekiel. And perhaps they were maybe making it, I mean, and, and this runs into a lot of issues and proves some of what Bloomrich says, because Bloomrich makes the claim within the spaceships of Ezekiel that it's pretty clear there are things missing from the book of Ezekiel. There are, there's, there's parts that just seem to be completely cut out because suddenly Ezekiel is over here and then he's over here, like out of nowhere. And within like, you know, not within like a verse, but, and, and of course, keep in mind that chapter and verse, those are modern creations for, you know, the, the historical text that is the, you know, that is the Tanakh. Uh, but you know, the, like the, there's, there's, it seems to skip around. The book seems to skip around. In fact, Bloomridge goes so far as to, and this is where his analysis is somewhat unique, or at least rare, that there are things, say, that happen in chapter 10 or chapter 9 of Ezekiel that maybe should have actually happened in chapter 2, that they seem to be out, out of order. And that's not a crazy claim to make, uh, because, again, there is tra- rabbinic tradition that the book of Ezekiel was heavily edited even just before it was going to get included in the Tanakh. It was edited as it existed when it was getting considered, but even before, even when it got considered and said, okay, we're going to put it in, basically you had priests literally burning, and I mean this literally, this is what the tradition says, they were literally burning the midnight oil to make it more palatable to be in the Tanakh at that time, okay? So this is a heavily edited book, and that lends to a lot of speculation, much like what happens with Bloomrich's Spaceships of Ezekiel book, where he's like, wait, he says, hold on. You know, Bloomrich is saying, this doesn't make sense. This should be here. This should be here. And, and, but, and he's saying it's pretty clear just on the text itself that editing was done or it's fragmentary. There are things missing. And he, frankly, he's not wrong. You know, I'm saying this, man of tomorrow. I'm saying this. He is not wrong in assessing that because we know that, or we have an idea if any of these stories are true that, uh, you know, be it the Ezekiel itself or the stories around the book of Ezekiel getting included in the Tanakh that yeah, editing was done at some point and there could be multiple authors. Just the fact that somebody was editing it, a rabbi was editing it before popping it into the, into the Tanakh really adds in an author, right? In fact, we even know the name of the rabbi. His name was, was Hezekiah. So the book of Ezekiel lends itself to a lot of speculation just in its existence in how it came to be. There's, there's so much speculation around that. 
And that just, you know, speculation really just breeds more speculation. I mean, that's, that's just a reality. That's why on the shows I do, I have to be, I try to be very careful, much like Carl Sagan said, you know, to separate, uh, fact from speculation, but don't be afraid to speculate because it's important to do. So Bloomrich goes on a wild speculation at this point. Again, his initial reasoning to try and debunk the works of Eric Von Daniken and, he ends up finding out, oh no, actually Von Daniken might be right on. Uh, and so let's start talking about the book, The Spaceships of Ezekiel itself. Now, again, Bloomrich is coming at this from the perspective of an engineer, a rocket scientist, from the you know materialist scientific uh, perspective. That's how he claims to be coming at this. He's not making any arguments for faith. Um, he is careful within the book. To say that at points that, you know, even though, and, and Von Daniken would make these similar claims, even though we, he might end up proving, or he thinks that he proved that this was, you know, that what, what Ezekiel encounters are some kind of, uh, ancient astronauts or ancient aliens, whatever. Um, even though he makes it very clear in the book that they looked like humans and that's why he keep, they keep getting described as such, like unto the likeness of man, or there's points where it's unto the likeness of God, um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a God because actually he'll bring up verses within Ezekiel that say it was like, you know, in the likeness of God, which of course God, you know, if you read the book of Genesis, uh, you know, he makes man in his own image, there's you know, you can get into a huge argument around that one, but you get my point. Um, so Bloomrich walks a fine line of saying, okay, this, he was experiencing corporeal beings, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still some kind of non-corporeal or some, you know, some kind of God that we, we can't exactly understand. Um, I mean, really like the, the understanding of God based upon Maimonides and other things within, you know, rabbinic tradition, boy, I mean, we could do a whole episode about that, but regardless, um, yeah. So just so you know, like Bloomrich, he's not trying to disprove God in this. He was again, really trying to disprove Von Daniken, but in so doing, he ends up with this really remarkable, uh, you know, series of conclusions. Now to come to his conclusions, he claims to use six different translations of the book of Ezekiel. What those translations are. Um, some of those are a little bit of a mystery, but whatever, uh, this leads to, I think, really the first critique of the spaceships of Ezekiel. Now, is, is does he, you know, develop what is exactly in the title? Yes, he comes up with a description of a working spaceship. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. But one of the first things to bring to mind here, and it's a criticism that was brought often against this book, and I agree with it, is that Bloomrich massages some of the verses out of the book of Ezekiel. And I think that claim of using six different versions of the Bible or of the book of Ezekiel to come to these translations, to come to these versions of these chapters and verses. Um, yeah, you'd have to do that. <laughs> and you run into problems when you start bringing in that many different, I mean, that's not unheard of. Other people have done that. Like, uh, what is it? The Jefferson Bible, right? By Thomas Jefferson. He used what, four different translations of the new Testament to compile the one book that being the Jefferson Bible, which he thought was the true teachings of Jesus, uh, where he gets rid of a lot of the spiritual aspects and everything. Um, anyway, and he, you know, he just leaves the moral teachings there. Um, 
But with Bloomrich, yeah, he comes up with some very massaged, very heavily edited versions of what's in the book of Ezekiel. Now, the, the irony is, is that he can kind of say, well, this book was already edited, so we got to edit it to, to try and get to what was originally there. So it's not exactly unfair of him to do that, but it is important to bring to mind that the book of Ezekiel that you read with whatever version of the Bible you happen to use, uh, of course, you know, some of the more literal versions, right, would be actually Young's literal translation, the kind of a rarer version of the Bible. Uh, then you have the uh, New American Standard uh, Bible, which the 1977 version of that, not obviously this was written in 74. That's not what Bloomer used, uh, but that's considered in the English language, the most literal uh, version out there or next to the American standard version from 1901. Um, I mean, I'm running all of this off of my head. Like if, you know, if you happen to want to read some of these stuff or you have, you know, like the new JPS translation, which is actually done by, which is a, a translation of Torah done by Jews. That's a more interesting one. I, I think really to look at, but regardless, you're going to notice the massaging if you decide to do any reading yourself. So we'll keep that in mind. And also Bloomrich does like we mentioned earlier he makes the case for where he is transposing events that happen later on in the book of ezekiel and he says well really what happens in chapter nine should happen in chapter two now that's not crazy for him to claim also which and, I, and i'll tell you why because the book of ezekiel in the prophetic works say alongside isaiah and some other texts like that is kind of unique or it might even be very unique in that it's one of the few books I can think of where it's chronological. The events in it are considered to be like, are considered to chronologically happen. Now there's inconsistencies in the chronology. For example, it seems to be written within like some kind of 20 year period. Okay. That like the book of Ezekiel, but then there's some weird reference to 27 years within the book itself. So that creates a contradiction with which is part of the reason why the priests were burning the midnight oil in editing the book of Ezekiel to make it worthy of inclusion or to make it fit the perfect narrative of the Tanakh at the time. That's why rabbis were doing that or part, part of the claim of why they were doing that. Of course, one could get into the claim. The real reason they were doing that is they were trying to hide the fact that the book of Ezekiel talks about aliens and spaceships. Woo! Right. <laughs> that's what Bloomridge would, uh, not that he exactly claims that, but maybe that's what he would claim. But, so it is weird that the book is so is so chronologically ordered because most prophetic works aren't that way. They skip around. And so, you know, for for the idea that what happened in chapter 10 should really be in chapter two could be spot on by Bloomrich, because then it then Ezekiel, the book as you know, at face value would fit in better with Jewish prophetic texts where they skip around more instead of being perfectly chronological as the book of Ezekiel uniquely is uh, within the Tanakh as far as prophetic works go. Now, I really want to come back to that because he makes that the way that he thinks or the way Bloomrich thinks that certain events should happen at this point, and not at this point. There's a much bigger conversation to have around that. And like I said earlier, that is the most interesting thing to come out of the spaceships of Ezekiel. But to get this out of the way, let's talk about the fucking spaceship, okay? <laughs> and perhaps the people that came out of it or that were piloting it or flying it. Um, the spaceship itself, I don't think is actually that interesting. Um, in fact, if you look at the cover of the book, uh, you can, and I'll put a link in the show notes for it. Of course, it's a book that's well out of print. However, there is a company recently called New Cesarean Press um, that 
they have they have been re, they've been doing audiobook versions of a lot of these books that are out of print, like these ancient astronaut theorist style books. Uh, and I really applaud them for doing this. Uh, so you can get it on Audible, even though it's a little more difficult to get it in a physical form or, I mean, it doesn't cost that much. I think you can get a copy for like 25 bucks, but just be aware that it's, it's out of print. Um, I have a copy, I have a, a PDF copy of it, of course, that I had made. Um, but regardless, you know, they're, they're out there. You can get your hands on this, but you can see what the spaceship looks like. And I mean, I imagine you even just put it in an image search and you're going to end up with uh, a picture of what this thing looks like. The, the capsule part of it looks like a teardrop and it's a teardrop where the, uh, you know, the finer, the point of it. Okay. Not the rounded part, but the point of it. So it's a teardrop upside down. The point of it is pointing down and then it has four struts. Okay, four what look like landing struts, and on each of those struts are, and you know they're they're all running kind of parallel. The the four struts, or they're not parallel; they're adjacent. But anyway, they have uh, helicopter blades. They have rotors on them. So this is a rotorcraft. Okay, uh, but it's a lot more than that because also apparently it is a spaceship. It's not just a rotorcraft. I'm going to give you my take on some of that, but we'll keep going. So, and not only that, but at the bottom of these, again, you have the wheels within wheels, right? That are described in Ezekiel chapter one. I'm not going to read Ezekiel chapter one for you here. Um, well, you know, that might actually be interesting. Why don't, why don't I read, here we go from chapter one. Uh, I'll just do verse 15. We won't read the whole thing, uh, but chapter one of Ezekiel from verse 15. And this is, you know, to Bloomrich, the ship has come down and here's where Ezekiel starts seeing what he sees. You know, he's hearing the, the burning and the lightning and the thunder and all this crap. Anyway, so here's verse 15. And ironically, well, let's talk about it. Here we go. Now, if verse 15, now as I behold the living creatures, behold one wheel upon the earth beside the living creatures for each of the four faces thereof. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto a barrel. And they four had one likeness and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in their four directions. They turned not when they went. Uh, so anyway, th that, that's, that's going into verse, uh, I guess 17 or no into verse 18. Now that wheel within a wheel, this is something that Christians, Jews, all, I mean, people have been speculating about what the fuck does that mean? And I agree. Chapter one of Ezekiel is probably next to like Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 65, which is very weird. Um, where it's talking about heaven, what heaven is like, but it says people die in heaven. It, it's very, it's a very strange bit of business. You can read about that. Anyway, uh, this wheel within a wheel I've heard. I mean, there's people who say, oh, that's like just a literal UFO. I mean, but they take it completely out of context as to where Bloomrich, you know, like, like makes that part of the spaceship. In fact, it's not even the most interesting part, ironically. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, I've heard other people say, well, I think that that's like, you know, Ezekiel got a glimpse of how the universe works and that maybe he saw DNA, right? Like the double helix, a wheel within a wheel. There's a lot of different interpretations as to what, you know, the wheel within a wheel means. Interestingly, which I think gives Bloomrich a little bit of credibility is that he doesn't hinge his entire uh, argument or his entire uh, concept of the spaceship being described in the book of Ezekiel on that verse. He doesn't bother. Uh, now the four people that are there, their likeness was, I mean, it's interesting to bring this part of the verse up. He says where they uh, they had one likeness. That's because they were all wearing environmental suits. 
even though, and, and because later on in Ezekiel, um, and this is important too, Bloomridge brings up that there are actually three events in the book of Ezekiel because of the ordering, the funny ordering, but it was actually three events that Ezekiel has with, um, with these ancient astronauts, we'll call them that. Um, and there's other events when this happens later chapters where it's very clear that they are very human or that they are human like anyway. Um, they're still aliens according to Bloomrich, but that they're very human like, but that's the thing is they're wearing environmental suits. Anyway, the wheel within a wheel, we can talk about this part of it. This is while we said, okay, the, the, the actual, uh, craft itself, the main cabin of it. Okay. The capsule is, is teardrop shaped. Then you have the four struts coming down halfway up going those four struts. There are, uh, rotors, there's helicopter blades. Okay. That allow it to kind of hover around. But in this verse, verse 15 or verse 15 through 18, you can see where, okay, wait, actually this thing kind of moves and it's touching the ground when it does it. So the wheel within a wheel is not referencing the rotors. What is it referencing? Bloomrich comes up with this idea that at the bottom of these struts, there are what he would end up calling Omni wheels, which are wheels that can not only roll back and forth like a vehicle wheel, but that can go side to side just as easily. He would end up, as I, I kind of hinted at this earlier, he would end up creating these wheels, Bloomrich would, and he would actually patent them uh, in the 70s because of his research into the book of Ezekiel. And he'd get the, he'd get awarded the patent, uh, you know, the original wheel, as we understand it, that like, you know, a car uses was patented in like 1919, uh, Bloomrich would patent the Omni wheel later on. And this is something that is used in lots of different places. Uh, and it's still something being, uh, uh, you know, improved upon for varying uses, including with newer versions of the patent. But basically Bloomrich came up with the Omni wheel, a wheel that can go back and forth and side to side, you know, with the same speed and ease. Uh, because of his research into the book of Ezekiel. It's pretty incredible. I got, I got to give him that. Uh, but that's just all that is that wheel within a wheel, which so many, uh, uh, researchers into the Bible, uh, you know, make such a big deal out of it and are like, what the fuck is that? Blah, blah, blah. You know, theologians and so on. They, they don't know what it means. It's really, all it is, is just something that allows, uh, Bloomrich's spaceship to when it lands to move over if it needs to. That's all it is. <laughs> you know, one of the biggest mysteries in, in the Tanakh is simply, you know, like the, the, the landing wheels more or less, uh, you know, I mean, even though the spaceship is a Vodal, right? Vertical takeoff and landing. Uh, it's just basically, you know, the landing wheels that you'd see on a 737, you know, <laughs> or that's what they equate to because it's that it's so the spaceship can just taxi, <laughs> right? which I, I think is kind of funny. Um, but regardless of that, uh, so yeah, you have, he has these other verses where he comes with the descriptions of these helicopter blades and those helicopter blades are what more or less allow. And that's where like the thundering sound comes from. They are what allows for the, uh, you know, the spaceship to get around on planet earth. And these people do get around. Okay. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about perhaps like what their mission was, why they're here in a second. Now, Bloomrich goes on to say that this vessel is powered by some kind of nuclear reactor. Um, you know, and it has a control cockpit, which Ezekiel confuses as the throne of God. Uh, there's something to be said for the description of Sapphire being used, which is a conductive element. And, I don't want, I don't, that, that's kind of a bigger conversation to get into because a lot of people don't know. In fact, most people didn't know until recently that 
the Ten Commandments, if they were an actual thing that was handed to an actual guy named Moses or something like that, uh, it's pretty clear that those were cut out. It's made clear in the book of Exodus that they were carved out of the throne of God. And the throne of God is described as being made of sapphire. Um, so the Ten Commandments were made of sapphire. So, I mean, there, there's something to be said there, but that's a much bigger conversation to be had. Bottom line being, if he actually saw sapphire in use, that's not that crazy because it's tough stuff. And also, you know, it, it's great when it comes to electronics. Um, and we know that today. I mean, for, for varying reasons that, that sapphire, uh, you know, gets used in modern technology. And I mean, modern technology isn't just like the 21st century. I don't think Bloomrich realized everything that he had, uh, you know, going for him there when he was talking about the sapphire part of this. But that's really it. That's all the spaceship is. And it's not based on, I mean, it's based on quite a few verses, but not a whole lot of the book of Ezekiel. But, you know, Bloomrich says this spaceship, again, the teardrop-shaped cabin, uh, the four struts, the rotors, you know, and then the omni wheels at the bottom and the nuclear reactor. I mean, he's basically saying, you know, this actually wouldn't be hard for us to come up with. We're, we're not that far off from developing a spaceship much like the one uh, described in Ezekiel. Now, if you ever watched Ancient Aliens, this is where things start to get a little more interesting. And we can talk more about the people that were perhaps piloting it in a minute, and, and we will. But um, in that, there is a... They tell the story about a guy who built a mock-up of the third, what is widely considered the third temple in, uh, you know, in the book of Ezekiel. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when they built a model, you know, when Bloomrich built a model of the spaceships of the spaceship of Ezekiel and the other guy had the model of, again, completely separately. They weren't talking to each other. It was just separate stuff. I mean, and why not? Like, like I've said, people have been studying and coming up with crazy shit out of the book of Ezekiel for literally over a thousand years, you know, for thousands of years, perhaps. Um, so this guy puts his model together and then someone just had the thought of what if we took the spaceship, let, like, let's build a little model of the spaceship of Ezekiel, see what happens. And amazingly inside of the third temple, the spaceship of Ezekiel can land vertically perfectly and sit perfectly right in the center of that temple complex. And that's pretty incredible. Now they bring that up in the spaceship or in uh, ancient aliens in the show. Uh, I think it was mentioned either in the first season or it's mentioned in the, the very first uh, documentary. I mean, that, that is incredible stuff, but they don't, they sadly ancient aliens doesn't go as far as Bloomrich does. Because Bloomrich goes on to say that actually this third temple, which is, this is one of those things where, that I think is far more revolutionary in what Bloomrich was saying than the spaceship. Do I think that that thing could be a spaceship? I, I guess I could, I could get into that, but hold on. Let me, let me finish this because it'll be part of a larger point. Bloomrich says that what actually happens is Ezekiel doesn't have a vision of the third temple, the central thing to so much of Christianity and Judaism, because it's the future restoration for the Jews. Right. And for Christianity, it's, it's the seat where unfortunately, I guess like the antichrist is going to sit and then Jesus is going to come back, whatever. And whether you're pre-trib or post-trib that, that creates all kinds of problems. Okay. But what, what essentially here, what people could widely is considered the third temple wasn't a third temple, isn't a future third temple. It is actually just a city complex that these ancient astronauts that they inhabited on earth 
for a while. And that's why, independently, again, it, this wouldn't be in the book, Spaceships of, Spaceships of Ezekiel, because this, uh, uh, you know, putting together the spaceship and the third temple didn't happen until after the book had come out. But that would explain why the spaceship can sit so perfectly in the third temple is because it was actually just a base far away for, uh, you, you know, for these ancient astronauts. And that's just the, just the base, just the abstract. And I think that that latter point that happens after the book gets published of the temple and the ship, you know, fitting so well together, that points at something far more interesting is that that's not a third temple. That's one of the most revolutionary things to come out of this book. And one of the big takeaways for me is that, Oh, no, 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 no. He's not talking about a third temple because it's very clear he's not talking about Solomon's temple because it doesn't fit the dimensions. And he's not talking about Herod's temple, because, which is the second temple that gets built after the Babylonian captivity because that didn't match the dimensions that Ezekiel was talking about. But Ezekiel did, if it's a historical text of some kind, which I think major chunks of the Tanakh are genuinely historical texts, uh, including the book of Job, including some parts of uh, of Genesis and so on. Um, you know, that, that he actually saw, well, he, he saw a city, uh, you know, I mean, you could call it a temple, but maybe that was a mistake because, or that was an, an editing thing, but he basically saw a complex, a compound that housed an advanced human civilization, an advanced, an advanced group of humans that piloted this quote unquote spaceship. That's huge. And the idea that some of the events should have happened earlier on, again, we already have enough textual problems with the chronology within uh, within the book of Ezekiel that it's kind of up for grabs to allow for this. And the way Bloomrich puts it all together, it makes some sense. Again, he's still massaging some of the verses, but then the verses have already been wildly massaged. So who the fuck knows? But for him to interpret such a... Well, something that I, I think he's right, that it's something that's not outside of our, our abilities to develop this spaceship. OK, uh, I mean, and look, folks, you know, to say, well, then why aren't we building them? Uh, Project Orion. I want you to read about Project Orion, which was a program. OK, by uh, Freeman Dyson was heading this. OK, yeah. Like the guy that came up with the Dyson sphere um, in the 1950s to come up with nuclear propelled spacecraft. And they developed, granted, it had its problems, but they developed effectively a spaceship that could theoretically develop. I mean, not theoretical as in, well, it might work. No, it would really work. Okay, it's just we can't build it because, well, there's problems with its launch vehicle and, and stuff like this. Not that, again, not that they wouldn't work, just that loss of life could be pretty bad. Okay, um, I, I highly recommend you look into Project Orion if you never have. But anyway, you know, they came up with a totally practical, viable spaceship that could take humanity to other planets in our solar system. It could do it. It's, I mean, it's theoretical in that it wasn't built, but it's not theoretical in that it couldn't work or that it might not work. And that's in the fifties, you know, well before, <laughs> Uh, the, the space spaceships of Ezekiel was even written. I don't know if Bloomrich had anything to do with project Orion, but it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So this isn't outside. This wasn't outside of our reach back then. 
he wasn't and and but you know again to say well how could if this if this uh spaceship of ezekiel could work why aren't we building it well it's the same question why exactly why aren't we building um the ships from project orion and i mean maybe the secret sauce here because again one of the issues of project orion is an issue of radiation uh you know maybe the secret sauce here or part of this are these environmental suits maybe they you know they're part of what make the nuclear powering of uh, of the spaceship of Ezekiel what make it possible okay um but oh boy where to go from <laughs> where to go from that now speaking of some of those suits there are like little things i want to touch on this then i want to i want to get into a couple other things there are little things that bloomrich mentions that he doesn't go into technical detail about while he gets into great technical detail around the spaceship itself um he talks about like there's points in the book of ezekiel where it talks about these guys i mean like having the wings that these suits aren't just environmental suits that they're wearing but that they also allow them to do like short-term flights okay like they can use the suits themselves to travel uh within that's getting into a whole other realm um i don't know what exactly to say about that but I mean, there's little things like that, and he doesn't spend a ton of time describing those, but basically he just want, he just says, well, those are technologies we don't exactly understand yet, but they're there, and, you know, he comes up with the consistent or the constant caveat that, well, as long as, or, you know, he's, he keeps coming up with that the book of Ezekiel is fragmentary, we're missing things, and it was probably, you know, Ezekiel might have described better what he saw uh, in some of the parts of the book that we, you know, we, we discover we're actually missing. Now, I, before I get into, no, okay, let's get into that. Let's talk about these people wearing the environmental suits. Bloomridge makes it very clear that they look human and he gets into in later chapters, he talks about how, while he, he gets into this argument that, okay, sure, you know, aliens from another world might end up, you know, may look wildly different than what we look like as human beings. They might not be bipeds. Who knows? They could have 20 eyes. We, we don't know. Okay. But he says, however, and he comes up with this concept, which is pretty interesting. I don't, I don't know if he comes up with it. I mean, it's based upon, you know, scientific fact. He comes up with what he calls the law of the lever. Now, I've never heard this anywhere else. It might actually be a very popular concept. And Bloomerich didn't come up with it. But he calls it the law of the lever. And basically, Bloomerich's argument for why these aliens look so human, even though they're not, in his mind, they're not human, is because, you know, the, the idea that the lever is the basis of the ability to do just about anything or to mold your surroundings into anything else. And he says, look, you know, all these, uh, uh, you know, various machines that we use to build stuff, you know, cranes, whatever, all these different things operate on levers. They, they function, you know, these industrial machines function very much like human arms and stuff like this is that it's just, it's, it's the best way to go. You know, like the law of the lever, basically his argument is, is that the law of the lever is what basically decides that other alien life probably would look very human. Now, he's not the first person to make this argument. In fact, you can go back to Christian Huygens, the son of Constantine Huygens, who wrote books on alien life back in the, well, this would have been like, uh, you know, 18th century, maybe a little earlier, 
where and this is the guy that oh what he, he discovered some i think he discovered titan actually of all ironies uh you know with a telescope and all this and he created telescopes but Christian Huygens, um, you know, he argued that, well, yeah, they could look very funny to us. They probably don't. They probably look very human. So the idea of aliens looking human is an old one. You know, it's not something that was just come up with to save money on television budgets for Star Trek or Lost in Space or what the fuck ever. Um, like that, this is something that a lot of brilliant minds, at least for their time, considered to be a you know like most likely that actually humans or that that aliens would look very much like us and bloomrich makes the same argument and basically he's saying he doesn't say where these aliens come from he doesn't get into that at all um i mean he, he almost completely dodges the question actually and but he more or less says that they're on a mission of exploration and he as to why they talk to ezekiel um, he makes the argument that they must recognize an impressive intellect, uh, in Ezekiel. And so, and that maybe that they had actually come to earth many times and perhaps that they had actually dealt with Israelites or Hebrews or Jews, whatever word you want to use. And granted, you know, those are all, they're the same thing, but they're also different things in ways. Um, and so maybe they knew to talk to them. Maybe they felt that the Hebrew code, you know, like, uh, uh you know, Kashrut law or, you know, Levitical, uh, you know, the various mitzvot and Levitical law and all that was very advanced for this humble planet earth. And so they wanted to talk to the most, what Bloomrich would argue would be the most, perhaps the most advanced culture. Whole conversation to have around that one, but that's his that's his argument as to why they would talk to Ezekiel and why they would show the stuff and and but basically they're on a mission of exploration. It's not like a Zacharias Sitchin thing where they are looking for gold. I mean, maybe that's part of it, and Bloomrich just doesn't go there. Who knows? Um, I would actually argue, and I'm I'm kind of gonna summarize a lot of this. Okay, I would argue a. I think that Bloomrich did really find some interesting stuff in the book of Ezekiel. Um, I am not opposed to the idea that what he sees or what, what he describes, the spaceship that he develops out of the writings of Ezekiel is not like, I'm not opposed to that being a real thing. However, the, where I would defer personally and this is, I just, I always feel like this is such a blind spot with, you know, these ancient aliens guys or ancient astronaut theorists or whatever. I would actually suggest that, and why Bloomrich won't go there, I don't know. Maybe he just wanted something more sensational and it was more sensational to say aliens at the time. I would propose that it wasn't a spaceship, but just an airship. Okay. And that's why you don't exactly, I mean, you get some descriptions of like, like the fire and all this stuff. And that's, you know, maybe the thrusters or something like this. Um, you know, I, I would more propose that like his, his description of the helicopters and the Omni wheels and all that, like all that stuff's pretty on in my opinion. And, and I, I, I see where he's getting that and it's pretty brilliant, uh, uh supposition. But that, all that neat requires it never, the damn thing never has to go into space. It just has to fly around on earth in that way. And a Vodal is a very efficient, um, I mean, and, and we have 
honestly, we have we have helicopters that operate on a very uh, similar you know concept. Could it still be a nuclear powered vehicle? Sure, and that way it never has to be renewed. Like maybe add a thorium reactor or something. I mean, who knows? Okay. I, anyway, that that's getting into whole other stuff. Uh, but regardless, the idea that there is a airship that has a near endless source of power, some kind of nuclear power, uh, and that was piloted by now. Here's the other thing. How about, I mean, I think it's, well, I can, I can kind of see the argument that it's, you know, this law of the lever argument that it just makes sense that other aliens would look human. If they look so damn human, it's probably because they were human. It's just that they were part of either a holdover or part of an advanced, uh, uh, culture or civilization that existed at the time that we just don't know about. Okay, or that maybe we do know about, but no one's willing to just ask the question, well, what if it's just ancient humans that were advanced? Why does it have to be aliens? Just like with the Greek gods. There's so many stories about the Greek gods, a little too many for it to just be some flight of fancy. But these gods always act so damned human, like they're jealous and they have all these other things. They act very in very human ways. Now, why is that? Is it because, you know, that just people are anthropomorphizing this stuff upon their gods. No, what's probably most likely is that they were just human. Maybe they were just more advanced ones. You know, I mean, you could get into, you know, kind of a who mourns for Adonis situation out of Star Trek, right? Where Apollo is, well, anyway, he was an alien, but regardless, if it's described as human, that's probably because it is the, the, the idea that all of these people, for whatever fucking reason, Maybe they feel like it's too easy to discredit because you can't find more of it, which we've already talked about this, that the basis, the argument oftentimes for why there, why people say, why archaeologists or whoever say that there weren't advanced human civilizations, like technologically advanced human civilizations, is because we can't find their technology. That argument rests upon the idea that that technology was democratized and rampant, that it was, there's a lot of it, like there is, like we experience technology today, but as I've said many times on Sovereign Tech and on Q&A content and elsewhere, there is no there's no historical guarantee that advanced technology is democratized as it is today. That might just be a byproduct or, well, not a byproduct, it's a direct product of the Industrial Revolution. Okay, it does not mean that thousands of years ago or however long ago that there wasn't advanced technology. Okay. And it, but it doesn't also mean that that for there to be advanced technology, that it had to be everywhere, that it had to be democratized. Maybe this spaceship was rare, you know, and if you build them right, you don't need a whole ton of them, you know, and <laughs> that's, and because actually Bloomrich describes that it's not like that there are multiple, uh, uh, it's not just one ship that they had like two or three of them. Okay, he, he gets into that. But again, you know, do you need uh, an entire fleet of 737s to be an advanced civilization? No, you could have two or three or hell one of the right ship and you're good. And that city, you know, instead of it being the third temple, but it actually just being a base or a, uh, a compound for this advanced culture, I think that makes total sense and way more fits the evidence you know, if, if what's in the book of Ezekiel is some kind of, kind of evidence of actual history and of actual technology, the, the answer that fits that all that better as to who made it, who's using it, where did it come from is right here on earth. And it's human beings, just ones that happen to be advanced.
you know, they happen to be technologically advanced. Now, what happened to that advanced civilization? That is a completely other conversation to get into. That is, I mean, that's a whole other thing. But regardless, um, the idea that, that it was some holdover or that it was an advanced civilization at the time and they had these airships, not spaceships, but airships. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have honestly, I have no problem believing that. I'm not going to say that it's a fact. OK, because, again, what's reality and what's not within the Tanakh is is a huge conversation in and of itself. But if the book of Ezekiel is actually laying out some kind of reality, I am of the opinion that that's the reality, that he saw an airship, that he encountered advanced humans, nothing more, advanced humans, uh, and that he actually went and perhaps visited their what was left of their civilization. And he might not have been the only one. Elijah might have, Enoch might have, go down the list of these characters who had these experiences supposedly with the divine. And perhaps it's not talking about an experience with the divine, but merely an experience with the advanced technology of another human culture. I don't think, I don't think there's anything crazy about that at all. Um, I mean, is there a long road to go to prove that sort of stuff? Yeah, sure. I think that there is a long road to go, I think. But I also admittedly think that a lot of the evidence for it has probably been, and I don't mean like it's a new world order or government cover up or something like that, but probably covered up by archaeologists, covered up by uh, other, uh, 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 shall we say, taste groups, you know, that maybe didn't, you know, what they saw on some wall or written in some book didn't fit with their worldview, didn't fit with their world, you know, with their life narrative, with their cultural narrative. And so they buried it. This happens and it doesn't have to be even, I mean, I think it's inherently malicious, but they might've thought they were doing what was best for humanity. And we know that is not like a, like we haven't grown out of that. Uh, for example, you have the Brookings report, right? From the Senate, from the U S Senate in, in the sixties that very clearly said, look, if, even if we knew that there were, uh, advanced, uh, you know, if there are extraterrestrials or whatever that we found out in space, they said, we can't tell everybody yet, if ever, because it would shake the foundations of our civilization. It would shake the foundations of human life as we know it. And, you know, for the U S government to write that shit down more or less, why is it weird for that to have been done at any other previous time in history? It's not weird at all. And it's probably happened a lot. And in fact, I would argue it was happening with the rabbis back when the Tanakh was getting compiled is that they read a bunch of stuff that a guy named Ezekiel or perhaps a group or perhaps a, uh, a, a priestly class uh, that identified as, as Ezekiel or Ezekiel's or whatever, um, that they read stuff that just didn't fit their worldview and so they edited it out, you know, and they said, okay, well, no, no, or no, that doesn't make sense. No, that can't be in the Tanakh, blah, blah, blah. Because we know, I mean, this has been the history of a lot of the Abrahamic faiths is that if there's a book that's just too fucking weird and says too much crazy shit or contradicts something else that they feel so goddamn important, it has to be in there. They take it out. For example, the various apocalypse books, you know, there's not just the book of revelation. There's the apocalypse of Paul, apocalypse of Peter. I mean, there's tons of them. But no, no, all right, no, no, we can't have those, right? You get the council and I see it. No, we can't have those. Or, you know, the book of Enoch, eh, it's too fucking strange. But one group of Christians thought it was okay, right? Uh, I mean, this happens. The, I mean, it, it, this textual censorship is a very real thing. 
Okay, it's not crazy. It's not conspiracy. I mean, maybe, but it doesn't have to be conspiracy. It's just what's considered best by the authoritarian figures at the time, be it the rabbis, uh, the church fathers, whoever. Because even within, you know, and this is, I think this is some interesting correlative material as well. And these are books that I have hinted at that I would review for quite some time. And I'm feeling a lot more confident in presenting this to you because I think a bigger case is being made here. So, like I said earlier, okay, um, Ezekiel chapter one, especially, which is what originally Bloomrich was basing stuff off of. Ezekiel chapter one is widely considered, and the book of Ezekiel as a whole, widely considered what started this entire idea of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, right? Now, later books that, that are extant from the Tanakh, the book of Behir, uh, Sefer Yetzirah, uh, and, and, and so on, okay, and of course the Zohar, these, these things would, you know, would come out, well, it depends on how you look at it, but we'll say later on, okay? I mean, there's arguments around all of that, but whatever. These books end up coming later on. Kabbalah becomes a thing, blah, blah, blah. Now there's the argument that Kabbalah has, is just Kabbalah. Kabbalah is not like a different aspect of Judaism. It is Judaism, right? Now, I mean, that's an argument to, to be made there. Now, the interesting thing that I want to get with that, okay, is that Kabbalistic texts, particularly the book of Zohar, have also been put under the same scrutiny that Blumrich put the book of Ezekiel, which again is considered the source I mean, if you ask a Kabbalist, they're going to tell you Sefer Yetzirah is the source, okay? But, you know, if, if you ask like a rabbi or other people, they'll say, well, really, actually, the source of a lot of this stuff, a lot of these mystical interpretations come from, come from the book of Ezekiel, okay? And actually, a Kabbalistic understanding, like if you read the book of Behir, or if you read some uh, like commentaries around a Kabbalistic text like the book of Behir, you end up with this from rabbis, you end up with this uh, notion, this idea that Torah isn't actually like that, that all the, I mean, the letters of Torah, all the, you know, the Hebrew alphabet, right? All the literal letters, Hebrew letters that make up the Tanakh or the Torah, whatever, that they are, they are sacred. However, they are not in the right order. And if they were in the right order, and if you knew the right order of these words or of these letters, you would be able to perform miracles, create worlds, do all kinds of crazy shit. So in Kabbalah, there's already this hint that things are not in the order that they should be, which is Blumrich's argument. That in Ezekiel, it's very clear, and he does a great job, again, I, like I told you, he did great textual analysis saying, actually, this should be here. Like this chapter, this should be in chapter this and, and so on. Okay. So this Kabbalistic tradition enters into the fray. And I think that it adds on to the picture because the book of Zohar has also been put under this, again, same scrutiny by a couple of guys um, in the seventies. It'd be a few years later. It'd be like in 19, um, was that in 77 or 1978? When the Man of Machine, another popular book in ancient astronaut, uh, uh, in the ancient astronaut, I don't know, I don't want to say tradition, but in, in they love this book, okay? And this has also been talked about on Ancient Aliens. I've actually, this is a very expensive book to get your hands on. Uh, and on any given day, you can spend $3,000 on trying to get a copy. Um, I actually, I released this book. Uh, well, I got a copy of it and I ended up getting a PDF scanned and out. 
But um, The Man Machine by uh, George Sassoon and Rodney Dale, um, which came out in 78 again, and also had a companion book, both of these of which I want to do a book review similar to this. Again, they play off of each other so well. Uh, the companion book, which is the Kabbalah Decoded, a new translation of the Ancients, Ancient of Days text of the Zohar. Uh, but I usually just call it the Kabbalah Decoded, but that's the full title. Um, both of those do the same thing, where they are taking these Jewish texts. Okay, Granted, the book of Zohar is not part of uh, the Tanakh. And, you know, most people want to just label that as uh, a medieval, you know, creation from the medieval times uh, by Jewish mystics. Um, But I, well, anyway, that's another argument entirely. But we'll talk about that when we review those books. But the Mana Machine and the Kabbalah Decoded are also making the same exact claim just a few years later than uh, Bloomrich did that these Jewish texts are actually describing really advanced technology. Of course, in the Mana Machine, it's a literal machine that the Israelites had when they were going through the desert, right? Um, You know, their 40 years, whatever, that was feeding them the manna and that it was this like nuclear powered. Anyway, there's whole diagrams in the man in the book, the Mana Machine about that, but it's the same idea. And it's interesting that these books that are effectively considered Kabbalistic texts and Ezekiel, of course, being, again, for many, the source of these, uh, that they're all pointing out that you can really interpret these and point out this advanced technology that's being described uh, within. Now, George Sassoon and Rodney Dale, uh, they would, oh boy, um, they would go so far as to say, you know, aliens. Like, that's the, again, that's such a huge problem. Everybody keeps jumping to aliens. Nobody takes nobody bothers to suggest was it just advanced humans, you know, or humans with access to advanced technology. And that advanced technology is a holdover from a previous civilization on the earth. No one bothers with that. And I cannot grasp why, especially since now the scientific community, or at least elements of the scientific community, not ancient aliens, people have come out and said, you know, if there was an advanced culture or advanced civilization, Uh, a few hundred thousand or a few million years ago, we'd have no idea that it ever existed today. Like, I mean, that, that is just, that's basically considered as fact now. So why no one wants to run with that, you know, today, I don't know. Um, And I'm sure a question that could come up after everything that I've just talked about is, well, what happened, uh, you know, to this advanced culture, to this uh, advanced technology and so on. Uh, And that's another reason that I think the idea of it being aliens is so attractive because, well, where did it go? The aliens fucking took it with them. Um, Well, maybe the advanced humans took it with them wherever they happened to go. Um, I mean, again, Project Orion was, you know, literally designing an atomic spaceship that could go to Mars and could take humans to Mars. There's a lot of, this is where we get into rampant speculation. A lot, a lot of speculation. And I mean, and there's already plenty of speculation being laid out here. Um, but it is interesting that you have independent sources putting together a picture. You have Joseph Bloomrich with the spaceship of Ezekiel, or what I would argue is just an advanced airship. You have the guy who, you know, made a replica of the third temple, which remarkably fits the spaceship of Ezekiel perfectly within it. And Bloomrich's conclusion that actually... Ezekiel wasn't seeing a future temple. He was seeing a modern installation of some kind or not a modern. He was seeing a a, a contemporary installation in Ezekiel's time. 
Um, and then you have, uh, you know, Sassoon, um, who, you know, George Sassoon and uh, Rodney Dale, who both came up and said, actually, the Book of Zahard, like this, this Ancient of Days, you know, this thing that gets equated to God is really just an advanced technology. All of this stuff starts to paint a picture and it's all coming from a similar source. Okay, from similar source material. It's not pulling from all over the place. That, uh, yeah, I think it does begin to paint a very interesting picture that deserves a lot more exploration. And I think that in review, the book, The Spaceships of Ezekiel from 1974 by Joseph Bloomrich is a great place to start because it comes from that perspective of scientific materialism. Okay, and granted, it does start to get into the aliens uh, question, which I think that starts to veer off into places that are completely unnecessary. Okay, and that Occam's razor uh, would have a field day with, as I like to say. But I think it's a great place to start, and I think that Bloomrich did tremendous work. And like I said, what's perhaps more interesting isn't even the spaceship itself, but everything else that Bloomrich had to bring to bear about. Uh, the book of Ezekiel itself, which I hope we spent a lot of time uh, describing and breaking down and that you found, uh, you know, enjoyable and interesting. So this is, I heartily recommend reading this book. I don't agree with everything. I think that Bloomrich massages things a little too much at points, but then he could, he could make a great, he could make some great justifications for why he needed to do that. Um, but these are places worthwhile exploring because it is very clear that either in the modern day or in ancient history, or even just, uh, you know, maybe just a couple thousand years, which is ancient history, but even going further back, but throughout periods of history, there has been some censorship involved. And I think we would do well to try and pick away at that and see what comes up so much to explore in our past and let's not write off humanity as being, I don't know, primitives or anything like that. We've been smart and we were smart and we've been smart for a very long time. So Spaceships of Ezekiel, check it out. I'll wrap this baby up and I will see all of you on the other side. And yes, I will get to these other books in this series. There's a lot to explore, a lot to debunk, but also a lot to, you know, maybe question and go, hmm, maybe I'll see you on the other side. Woo!